Steve and Kevin review Ixalan for Vintage on episode 71 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 71 of So Many Insane Plays, our review of Ixalan for Vintage. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. For announcements this episode, Steve, we've got a couple of Midwest tournaments coming up on the same weekend as part of our ongoing hmm. semi-monthly or mostly monthly events in the Southwest Michigan area. We've got, or Southeast in the case of RAW, we've got Vintage on September 30 at BC Comics in Battle Creek, and then the next day on October 1st at RIW in Livonia, both of those are full proxy events. You can find information on the BC event on Facebook, and you can find information about the RIW event on the Mana Drain. Steve, what have you got? We've got one. Uh, we've got one vintage event on the on the calendar in the San Francisco Bay Area on Sunday, October fifteenth, which will be conveniently the weekend right before Eternal Weekend. Will be October our October vintage at Eudaimonia in Berkeley. So Bay Area folks. Come down, come up or down to Berkeley, depending on where you are, maybe from the west or even the east, come to Berkeley and play some vintage. Awesome. October 15th, yeah. Awesome. Right before Eternal Weekend. That should be an interesting uh, metagame indicator. I agree. It'll be perfect timing. Um, well, in the last couple of shows, I've talked about the final chapter in my old school magic series for VintageMagic.com, and I've been told that that will be up in the very near future, the final the final chapter in that series. And the whole series is, as I said, is a complete series that looks at kind of the major nooks and crannies of the format. But the last chapter, which I think I've teased before, is on prison strategies. So look for that. I also have a backlog of now history of vintage chapters that are sitting in the Eternal Central Editor's queue. So we're waiting on Jason Jaco to get those out. <laughs> chapters 2006, 2007, and 2008 are all done and in the can. And I have the entire rest of the series outlined. So the goal, as I said before, will, will be to have a really nice history of vintage, schools of magic, schools of vintage magic, history of vintage book that people can, can pre-order coming out sometime in January. That may be slightly idealistic, but I'd like to have it. I mean, we could be on track to have it done by the, by the beginning of the year, which would be awesome so that people could actually have a nice, thick hardcover that has, you know, all the cool deck lists from the whole history, the warp and wolf of the, of the format since it's, you know, inception is just constructed magic through type one, through vintage, you know, with, with cool pictures and images and banned and restricted lists, kind of a perfect tool for anyone who wants to, you know, not only relive and understand the history of these schools of vintage magic, but also, you know, actually pick up decks from historical periods and play with them. So th- that should be done, you know, but I'm, it, it just depends on how quickly Eternal Central can pump them out. Awesome. I look forward to it. The last few hardcovers that Jayco has produced for out of Eternal <laughs> yes. Central have been high quality products. So I look forward to seeing it. it. Eternal, Cent- 
Eternal Central Publishing has a, a real uh, a press rather has a really good track record so far. <laughs> so hopefully this will be in the same in the same vein. Exactly. Well, Kevin, this is a really special episode for us. Not just because we get to review a new set, which we think will probably have a, at least a couple of cards that will be interesting for vintage. And I'm excited to review Ixalan, mm-hmm. but this is the first time that both of us have been able to do a show in the midst of a live season of the Vintage Super League with both of us in the league. Right, right. So it's a real, it's kind of a uh, a really unique opportunity for us to talk about, you know, what we're experiencing in the league, what's happening in the league. And um, I, I just think we got to take advantage of it. Um, so I definitely have some questions for you. Um, but just to start off with, just some observations about Season 7 of the Vintage Super League. First of all, I have to shout out Randy Bueller, who is the creator and driver of this of the Super League series and the Vintage Super League being the most super of the Super Leagues. <laughs> um, so for those of you who, who are living under a rock or don't know what the Vintage Super League <laughs> is, it's a series that Randy Bueller created in 2014 that really takes advantage of the possibility to stream vintage. So when vintage came on Magic Online, you could show it and broadcast it to the world. It's really amazing, Kevin. I mean, just in the last you know, six or seven years, the, the diversity of forms of content for vintage, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we were the first to launch a podcast uh, uh, sort of exclusively for vintage, if not in Eternal generally. We might right. have been the first Eternal podcast. But in, and now we've got streamers, you know, people who do it really well. And, and, and um, the Vintage Super League is just a wonderful showcase for the format. And it's, it's a lot of fun. And um, so it's it's a league that's set up for basically 10 weeks in a playoff where, you know, 10 players get to battle vintage decks. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just a really cool thing to watch. It's a really entertaining show. And people can interact with the, you know, in the, in the Twitch chat, interact with the, the commentators and the, and the players. And so it's a really cool thing. So that's what the Vintage Super League is. And, and we're now at season seven uh, a couple years later. Mm-hmm. But also, this is an amazing uh, group of people he's assembled for this this uh, season. Mm-hmm. And I love the form. I want to talk with you. Uh, I want to ask you about your deck choice for the first trimester. The first trimester, the first two weeks are behind both of us, so we can talk openly about it. I also want to get your impressions of this season so far. But the first question is just, I mean, how sweet is the uh, is the the player base and the format? You know, the first thing I'd just like, like to start off by saying, this is an incredibly diverse cast of people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've got, you know, di- diversity in almost every aspect of diversity showing up, and I, I love it. And so I just wanted to hear your thoughts on the format. Before we get into the deck choice strategic selection, just big picture, what do you think of the season so far? Yeah, well, I think it's a rousing success. Uh, it's been interesting as a brewer's challenge in an effort to to create some deck selection diversity the first couple of weeks haven't had very much but that's going to because of the structure of the of the league it's going to manifest as more diversity in terms of deck choice in the future but to your specific point about the people involved yeah we have people who basically come at vintage from nearly every different direction right we've got We've yeah. got aficionados. We've got longtime people like you and me who just love and adore right. the format. We've got pros who appreciate the format and have been through the league a number of times, like Efro and Randy himself, of course. Yeah. We've got authors. We've got gunslingers. We've got brewers. I mean, yes. yeah, every we've every got person. Time players, new time players, professional magic players. It's also racial, gender diversity, other forms of diversity. I mean, it's 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 great. Yeah, I mean, it's really great. I think he's done an amazing job selecting people who are 
interesting in bringing together, you know, it, we will bring interesting perspectives, interesting decks, interesting commentary. Mm-hmm. It's just, it just, it just seems so much fun. I mean, this is just a fun, a fun crew. Yeah. I think he did, you know, an amazing job keeping, keeping on the format for a second. Um, I love the I love the way that Randy has, is willing to both take risks and also modify and evolve. So I mean, frankly, I thought the first season uh, of the Vintage Super League was a brilliant. It really was a stroke of brilliance to figure out the format in advance, because that that structure of having trimesters and then you know where players you know get to select different decks worked really really well. But what happened is over time, after a couple of seasons, maybe three or four. Players started getting, um, they get they got known for for playing certain kinds of decks, and the problem was that we got a little bit of an inbred metagame where you know like oh you're playing Steve this week and Rich this week and you know Randy this week and so you know there's a good chance I'm going to face a Gush deck and maybe a Merfolk or a Belcher deck and maybe a Control Slaver deck or whatever, and so I think one of the key things to decide is how can you structure the format to really incentivize people to prepare for a broad range as opposed to just the, a particular player. Mm-hmm. And the fix for that is that you submit your decks in advance without knowing who you're going to face. And that's worked really well. Also, I think to get ahead of things so we can get you know going right after the restrictions and also you know to really focus on the Brewers Challenge and with the mixed up format, with the format addition that you can't play the same deck over, um, it compels all the players in the league to go in really different routes. So that's an additional fix that I really like as well. But I also think it kind of decreases the need to have the play-in. So I think Randy's idea of, I'm just going to, no relegation, I'm just going to mix it up and throw people together who I think will have interesting chemistry, I think is working really well. Um, and I, I love the I love the format, I love the idea. What, what, do, you, what do you think about the, the changed format, the changed approach, and the, the new rules? Yes, I think he has properly addressed a handful of issues that viewers had with the league in the past by creating this Brewers Challenge, by updating the structure. This is now the second time through, right, for the rotating cast, uh, four people per week. This is the second time he's done that, right? Right. Yeah. But this is the first time they've done this rule that you can't play the same deck back to back. Right, exactly. So the combination of those factors plus the, the deck submission in advance, uh, for those of you who don't know, we all had to submit our decks before the first week kicked off, before we knew who was in our pod, any matchups or pairings, right. anything like that. So that's a good improvement. There's some things going on behind the scenes that make the production better and better. Uh, Athena's killing it with the, the interstitials <laughs> and the videos. I mean, that, that video this time, I'm, oh, I'm, it's, it's amazing. amazing. I'm impressed. <laughs> Yeah, it's really fun to listen to and watch. So, yeah, I think it's it's going on all cylinders, and I hope the product will just continue to improve in these same ways. It really does seem like the Vintage Super League now has its own kind of theme song. I mean, it had that whole little, you know, jingle before, right. but now it's got its own kind of, you know, full-blown. That's <laughs> great. It's, it, it really, it's really is. catchy. <clears throat> and if I, I find it, it gets me pumped it, up if I'm playing it, or not just to watch it. It's good. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I hadn't even thought about a kind of... Um, discussion of a, the, a, a kind of positive critique of the the theme song but it has a kind of techno retro edge to mm-hmm. it which is perfect for vintage uh, and an online broadcast but it also has that kind of like high energy you know yep. yeah it's 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 motivational it's it's thematically appropriate it's just it's just great <laughs> i couldn't agree more so let's talk so let's, yeah, let's, let's talk about our experience yeah. for the first two weeks well, Kevin, this is your first time in the VSL formally in the main season. So 
you start. What's it, how does it feel? What's it like? Are you, are you enjoying it? I am enjoying it. Uh, it turns out, as I joked on stream, my matchup against coverage is a lot better than my matchup against uh, actual human opponents. Unfortunately, in my first week, I went 0-3, but I still had a great time doing it. And the uh, the commentary is, is tons of fun. It's fun to sit down to commentary with different people, too. I've only done it a couple of times, but... Uh, sit down with somebody the, the caliber of Reed Duke, for example, and, and just talk about magic is is really enjoyable. And I yeah. look forward to doing that more and more. And I look forward to yes. chalking up one in the win column eventually, too. But I didn't have any kind of delusions <laughs> of, of, you know, running roughshod over the, the competition in my first full vintage super league so i'm just uh, happy to be here <laughs> that's a that's a you know that's an interesting uh, observation i i agree i think doing the commentary is very enjoyable mm-hmm. i find in particular i find that efro just always his wit just usually causes me to crack up <laughs> you know he just kind of has this kind of like dry uh really on point sense of humor yeah um and and i went back and watched the video after you know my uh, after the evening was over and i was listening to efro talk during my match and his banter with with rachel was hilarious i found myself literally laughing out loud like you know quite a bit that, that's, that's <laughs> a was, pretty fun combo was, yes i, yeah, I enjoyed that funny. a lot <laughs> I, I i feel like i'd be remiss if i didn't point out that when you get efro and rich shea on the stream together it just makes me need a glass of water it's so dry <laughs> 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 and that's just yeah, an example it's, it's, of uh, what you just observed with with he and rachel it's just an example of how you get different people different <laughs> personalities and styles together and the, the results are are fun yes they, they really are it it's also interesting though when i always feel like when i'm in the booth so to speak doing the commentary the matches go so quickly that you don't really get a chance to kind of breathe and kind of you know really have some interesting commentary during the matches but it seems like my matches always go forever so that the commentators get a lot of opportunity to be a kind of a vin scully if you will that's you know, funny to do a lot of things that's funny like my matches my match one of my matches uh in the last week entailed me literally decking my opponent Randy. right so it's like which we i don't know if we've ever seen <laughs> well one of the interesting one of the interesting observations from the from the bsl is how many times certain things have happened. Mm-hmm. You know, there's kind of a now a, a kind of VSL stats, uh, you know, a niche uh, subcategory of people investigating VSL stats. And, um, you know, I'm sure that there have been people who have decked, but it might have been just like two-card Monty decking, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to actually, you know, grinding it out decking or, or slow slow milling with uh, Jace Ultimate. Well, I... <laughs> I'm glad that you pointed specifically to Jace Ultimate there uh, because I participated in what I think is a VSL first in my, I guess it was first or second match of the first week, and that was not scooping when Jace the Mind Sculptor ultimates against you. (laughs) I I think I'm the first person in VSL to actually continue playing after they got Mind Sculpted. (laughs) And it was funny, too, because Rich, uh, not Rich, Randy wrote in the 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 vsl chat that he said kevin you can concede at any time you know and i was laughing and i said yeah i just want to play one more spell and it turns out that i had mental misstep left in my deck and when i drew it there were like six cards left in my library i thought my whole goal this match now is to cast one more spell (laughs) and then i'll concede so yeah i got to misstep one more thing and then i scooped i i just thought it was funny to see someone actually get mind sculpted and keep and keep playing because I was so so far gone that that particular game. 
That's true. That's true. I had forgotten. That was that was. I guess there's two different Jace ultimates. There's the right. the Jace the Mind Sculptor ultimate, right, which kind of does it in one fell swoop. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Baby Jace ultimate, which I did, yep. which is much much grindier. Yep. Um, and gives you some but, some semblance of possible hope. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, there are certainly times where you people could probably scoop earlier, but I, I think it actually depends whether there's really any element of drama, right? The whole point of this is to be an entertaining experience for the viewer, right? And so sometimes, sometimes a dramatic death is a very entertaining thing to see, yeah. Right? You want it's kind of got its own gore, you know, gore, you know, slasher, blood and guts entertainment exactly, to it. Sure. And so actually, actually seeing someone get completely blown out and having all those, you know, this is probably a bad example, but seeing a hundred monk tokens, you know, firing over there is kind of an entertaining thing to see. Or that's probably, like I said, a bad example because people are sick of that. But <laughs> or multiple planeswalker emblems, which you had. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I, I think sometimes people scoop too soon in terms of just the entertainment value. But if it's a kind of long, drawn out, you know, inevitable thing, yeah. then yes, yeah. you probably should spare the viewers. <laughs> <laughs> well, getting back on track, though, I chose to play Bug Standstill, a list that I had played a couple times locally, one that I got from Josh Potacek and one that I've really enjoyed and one that I would not choose again if I knew my <laughs> opponents because well yeah were, would you have any inkling that there would be three Leobold decks <laughs> no. your week no I did not I um <laughs> well you had to put Rodrigo as a possible Leobold player right uh, yeah that's he, true but I think Rodrigo's range is pretty broad that's not didn't surprise me let's put it that way and it didn't surprise me too much that Reed brought it either. But I was, again, I didn't know who my opponents were when I selected a deck, so bear that in mind. I was, in my eyes, preparing for what I thought were the top two contenders in the format going in, and that was workshops and outcomes. So the deck was definitely tilted towards those matchups and definitely disadvantaged against other aggro control, preordain-based Leovold lists. So... I don't feel too bad about my deck selection, but it was definitely a putrid matchup that week. Remind me what everyone played one more time, because I I have all the... So in week two, uh, Eric played Grixis Thieves, Randy played Paradoxical, uh, he called it Bargain Storm, with Paradoxical (laughs) Outcome. I played a a Dak Delve uh, Jeskai Pyromancer Mentor deck, and Rachel Agnes played um, Rich Shea's uh, Jeskai Mentor Dak Delve deck, except it has three Snapcasters instead of pyromancers right and and zero jace jace fringe prodigy right but week one Rod- rodrigo and you play leovold decks there was a third leovold deck with and reed played but who was the what did the fourth player play again oh it was um rich playing rich Jeskai Mentor. Jeskai. Yeah. yeah yeah the same thing right yeah. got it yeah so we've had three leovold decks three Jeskai decks um and uh and, and then grixis, grixis thieves, thieves and, and and a and bargain DPS. bargain deck <laughs> not, only not really only one of the, one of eight players, only one of eight players is playing Paradoxical Outcome, yep. which is kind of the bo- the boogeyman after the restriction, right? I mean, it's interesting. You and I both, I think if you, people go back and listen to our post-restriction show, mm-hmm. our predictions are pretty dead on, you know? We'll, we'll talk a little bit briefly about the Eternal Extravaganza, but yeah. I think... I think anyway. So well, so continue. You, yeah. So what did you? What was your process? So you you played Bug Still. You liked the deck. You played it locally. Yes, yeah, so I I wanted something that had uh, broad answers to the metagame because I knew I was going to be submitting three different decks over the course of the whole league. So I just wanted to start out kind of with a broad answer to see what people would throw because I had a feeling that a lot of people in the league would be throwing 
very powerful decks at the first week. I expected more shops and a more outcome than we've seen inside of the first week. So that was my that was my idea. I did not. I mean, I don't think my deck is like uh, a zero slash one hundred matchup against those people and those decks that I faced in week one. But I do think it's disadvantaged against those lists, and it's unfortunate to say, even though Jeskai is still a powerful player in the metagame, that this particular uh, bug still list is a little draw dependent against those decks. <clears throat> that having been said, though, I. I do think that the preordained style or the dark confidant style of bug is is where you want to be in vintage, and it's where I wish I had been <laughs> for my first week's matchups. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's it's obviously it's a big risk if you think you're going to be facing a lot of Delver type pyrom or pyromancer decks. Yeah, because they have they can not only have burn for the Leoval, but they also have, as you mentioned, one of your menace cards, pyroblast. Yeah. Yeah, Pyroblast um, matches up incredibly well against Leovold. There's no two ways about it. And if you want to play a Leovold deck at Champs or some other large upcoming event, you have to have a plan for what you're going to do in the Pyroblast matchup <laughs> because it's critical. And I do have one sideboard strategy that I did not implement for the VSL, but which I came up with after I had submitted my list, sadly, that I look forward to trying in future events, but it won't be in this league, unfortunately. Interesting. Do you do you want to share what that is, or would you like to keep? I that? want to keep that one under my hat. It's a small okay. thing. I'm not trying to trying to okay. <laughs> grandstand yeah, yeah. here, but what I'm saying <laughs> is is that that pyroblast Leovold interaction is a critical fulcrum for the matchup and for I think the metagame right now. If it wasn't for pyroblast, yeah. I think Leovold might be running even more rampant. But it just so happens that Jeskai is still quite strong, and so pyroblast is omnipresent. Well, and so are workshops, which you know. Um, I think Leovold's an awkward card against a workshop deck. It is. It doesn't really do yeah. a ton. It is. And, and I think it may be an appropriate time just to mention the Eternal Extravaganza. There were 95 players, mm-hmm. which makes it kind of like a, you know, half of an NYSE or two thirds of an NYSE. And the top eight was 50% workshops, yeah. which was identical to the NYSE. The difference is there were two dredges in the top eight and then a Jeskai mentor deck and then a Leovold deck. A Leovold, a Leovold deck. <laughs> so, um, you know, we predicted after the restriction of workshop of of Thorn that we thought workshops would would drop from you know what it was a forty some percent to we thought between twenty five and thirty percent mm-hmm. certainly no lower than twenty percent. I think we'll be proven right over time. I think so. But in the immediate aftermath of the restriction, people always tend to shy away. You know, they're kind of despondent and you know disillusioned <laughs> with the they're dis- disillusioned with workshops, and then they always kind of gravitate back towards it once they see it's consistently great yeah as it always is <laughs> and i think um, this new set release but, will have something to do with that as well but quick question a couple follow-up questions for you um what does playing bug rule out for you in the future and did you think consider that i absolutely considered it that's an interesting point so i wanted to choose a deck that doesn't that basically doesn't cut me off from anything else in my opinion like randy's rules quote unquote for the brewer's challenge are that you're not i mean it's kind of like a, a handshake agreement don't play the same deck next week right or next next yeah. uh, month in the case of bug leovold though it doesn't cut me off from basically any other thing in the format there's not much that overlaps with leovold i'm not going to play leovold again uh, and I will probably not yeah. play Deathrite Shaman again, although that's like a gray area, I would argue, depending on how you construct your other Deathrite Shaman lists. But honestly, I, I liked it because it was uh, it was something I had been playing and having success with recently. And also it means leaves me open to basically every other deck in the format going forward. 
Oh, well, that's I, I'm excited to see what you can come up with. I know that you can come up with some cool brews. <laughs> I definitely have some cool brews in mind. Um, it, is there anything in terms of your play that you wish you could have taken back or done differently? Well, you know, it's hard to point to very specific situations. I don't think I took, you know, the, the exactly the wrong uh, overall line in in too many situations. Um, there was one force of will that I can't bring up the scenario well enough. There's one force of will I wish I could take back because I think I was the wrong fight. And there was one pivotal moment that you and I talked about off the air, which was when I got my opponent. Who was my opponent when I got them down to four and they plowed my, uh, that must were, have been rich. I think you were playing. Yeah, it was rich. It must have been rich because there was a swords to plowshares involved. Yeah. And one of our games, I got rich down very low and was attacking, um, with a creeping tar pit under a standstill yes. <laughs> and uh, and rich broke the standstill to plow the tar pit eot just to break the standstill as you do with an instant but also to get the threat off the board and i had the chance to fight over that and with him so low on life it might have been my best chance path to victory to fight over that at the time but i i was just gun shy i didn't think i was going to be able to, to keep that thing alive with how much removal his deck has for it but uh you know, given that he he had been drawing cards for a couple of turns, he could have any number of maybe six to eight answers in his deck at that point in a late game. So I didn't yeah. think I could keep it alive, but it may have been my best chance to do so. You know, we haven't done scenarios in a long time, a scenarios episode or pod- podcast. And I think we're going to, to plan some of those where we identify discrete scenarios to discuss and debate. Mm-hmm. But since we're both on the VSL, I think talking about our player specific moments is certainly valid we didn't prep for that so i kind of put you on the spot but i thought you played very well overall you know you can always point to things you wish you would have done differently i i think that particular play was probably the play that stood out to me most it's interest it's not just what i think i don't think it was just a mistake but i think it's an interesting mistake (laughs) because it's one it's one that that brings back into focus or it it's a mistake based upon the question of who is the beatdown right right that you decided elected not to do that because you get more value from letting it resolve yet the context of the situation is that he's at four life and if you can get one more swing just by tempoing right trading two for one for the swords right. just you then get him to one then i think his options dramatically constrain yeah, and so I think I think even if he was able to remove it, which is a good chance on the following turn, he he can't swords on his turn, right? <laughs> so he's going to have to do it on your turn. If you can get one more attack in, I think it's it's it buys you a lot of things. It means he can't play a spell on his turn because he's got to keep his mana up, and he was constrained on mana. And I don't think you cued into this, but you had wasted I think all but he only had like one colored mana source. He had like a library and an off-colored mox or something, mm-hmm. and or a non-relevant mox. And he had like the tundra, and you'd wasted two or three of his tundras already, so he was really constrained on mana. Um, okay, but I gotcha. think that was the only thing I would have. I think that was the only thing I would have done differently if you. I thought you played really well. It's. I mean, it's. There are always things that you wish you could have taken take back. You know, I played against Rachel, and in the first game there was something happened with Magic Online, and I don't know what it was, <laughs> but it was the beginning of the. It was the beginning of the first match where I was trying to fetch out a volcanic island in response to her ancestral. Right. And Magic Online wouldn't let me... People thought that my internet was was down or something else, but what it was was Magic Online... I kept clicking a volcanic island, and I kept hearing a sound, which I said during a later match um, during the commentaries. It sounded like 
when Simon Belmont gets injured on Castlevania, or it sounds like some, you know, like, it's just like a little, it's like a little heart sound, you know what I mean? It's like a, so somehow I got caught in some sort of, I don't know, messed up bug, or, or if it's not a bug, some, I don't know what it was, but I was asking Athena, the producer, like, what's going on, and how do I fix this? And I said, I'm, she could see I'm trying to click the, the you know, the volcanic island, right. and it just wasn't coming out. And she just said, restart your magic online. So it wasn't, it wasn't a tech problem on my end. It was just the, you know, something with magic online that we couldn't figure out. Sure. But anyway, but anyway, that game was really weird. And I just wanted to highlight this when we're talking about things we would have done differently. Because she played a Mystic Remora. I stripped mine her first land, and then her second land played Mystic Remora. And I was flooded with lands, but I didn't fetch. I, I brainstormed, and I saw two more lands. And I just played two fetch lands and drew two more lands that I could have shuffled away. And I got totally mana flooded. And in retrospect, I wish I had shuffled just to see some fresh cards. Sure. Because I, th- I thought she's, she was going to continue to play lands, so I needed to um, you know play more lands to get around the Remora and just buy time. But she never played the second land. And I should have seen that immediately and just shuffled away this at least the second land. And I might have been able to dig back in. That was a very close game. But that was the only thing I regret. I wish I had done that differently. The other two games, the other two matches I played were way too complicated to even begin <laughs> to figure out what I could have done differently. Right. I mean, they were just like massive, like complicated, massive number of branches in each game that I could have pursued. It's just too comp- convoluted to even begin to think what I could have done differently. Anyway. I, I do have one specific scenario question for you, and it's more general rather than the particular match and game in question and that was your early strip mine against rachel which was i was where i think you were on the play and you stripped her first land and then she played library on like a turn or two later and that library ended up dominating that game i wonder if you have thoughts on the whole aggressive strip slash waste strategy in that jeskai deck when you have so few of those utility removal lands i you know, it's hard to know. Uh, I, I think I figured out pretty quickly. I don't remember what she first fetched out, but I think she fetched out a Tundra and mm-hmm. I stripped it. I and agree. so I immediately put I immediately put her onto a Jeskai deck. And so the reason I strip immediately is because I fear a gush more than library. Interesting. <clears throat> so I don't want the strip to run into a gush. That's what I'm more concerned about. You know, I, a library is obviously, I think, obviously best on turn one, but it's much weaker later on. Yeah. And I think... I think, I mean, honestly, if I had drawn and I drew, like, in the six or seven turns I had after her Remora went away, I drew, I think, like, two missteps, a Pyroblast, and then five mana. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if I had drawn, like, a, a reverse mixture of spells, I think I win that game because she's so constrained on, on land. Yeah. So the strip line actually did its job. I just didn't do my job shuffling post brainstorm. And I also made a mistake playing the fetch land on turn one instead of a dual land. I should have played the dual land on turn one. I was just nervous and I got back in the VSL and I honestly I think it was a misclick. <laughs> I think I was trying I think I was trying to click the dual land and I clicked the fetch. And I was compelled to break it as soon as she played it ancestral because I needed to brainstorm for a misstep right, or force. Right. So that was actually a mis that was a mi- that was actually a misclick. Now there are plenty of legitimate reasons to play a fetch land first, right? Sure, sure. Match but when you up- have brainstorm, you don't want to. Well and also you were playing against Rachel who has shown a immunity to playing with wastelands, basically. So yeah. <laughs> I mean I yeah. I you know I would have Put the odds I, of her playing uh, a non wasteland deck very high. So exactly, I, that's why I just I figured she's going to be playing something blue. I think I put her on another playing 
a Jeskai deck or a Leovold deck. Mm-hmm. Honestly, that's what I thought. So I was I was committed to playing a uh, a dual land. I had plenty of lands. I, it was just a misclick. Understood. And it just it just it's interesting how playing the wrong land has a cascading effect. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, but I wanted to get back, you know, I wanted to get back to your to your deck and your uh your games. So, um you know, what do you think what do you think uh is going to be like the pattern to play in the next couple of trimesters? I mean, obviously people are going to be pushed off of decks that are in, most in their comfort zone. How do you feel about it? Are you happy about that? I mean, do you feel like you've got a big enough range that you can pick up anything? Yeah. Yes and What's yes. What's your process? I have a feeling that a lot of people over three trimesters of sorts, I think a lot of people are going to be on outcome and just guy and X or that X yes. is either shops yes. or dredge or something else or Leovold, right? I just have a feeling yeah. that a lot of people are going to gravitate towards two out of the three best decks in the format and then something spicier. You know, Paul Rietzel well, is- can't bring a white X aggro deck <laughs> every every time. He could play yeah. you know, white green one week and then white red the next and white blue the next, but I, I don't think he will. <laughs> so I think what we're going to see is more shops versus outcome style matchups in the, in the next couple of weeks. I agree. I agree with that. I mean, it's partly because shops and outcome are totally different card pools. So yeah. it's a, and you can play those and play a third blue deck yep. pretty easily. But the the interesting question for me is going to be when at what point do people play those? Are they going to pl- go for like is it going is the last trimester going to be dredge heavy? And how will the last? This is a little bit inside baseball, <laughs> but some of the questions I've been wondering about are. You know, so I have some decks in mind, but I'm trying to figure out which decks will have the best impact in which of the trimesters. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we haven't seen what Paul and David and Bob are going to be playing, uh, and Aaron are going to be playing in the end of the first trimester. And we can make guesses, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. But, but you know, so I think it's a given that the Vintage Championship will have an impact on what people play in the third trimester. Sure. The Vintage Championship will happen after people have submitted their second trimester deck lists, but before the third, I believe. Um, so it's likely that results, you know, if there's a really interesting deck that comes out of the Vintage Championship, someone might be inclined to play it, right? Sure. And also the next set, Ixalan, which we're going to review today, it will be legal. It's legal for the second trimester, right? Yes. So there's some really interesting factors to consider, right? Definitely. So one thing is if you want to go, I'm just thinking hypothetically, if you want to play a combo deck like Paradoxical Outcome, one thing to think about is, let's say just hypothetically you don't want to face workshop decks. Will people be more inclined to play workshops in the second trimester, post-EE7 and pre-Vintage Champs, or more likely post-Vintage Champs? Or will people be more likely to play Dredge, right? <laughs> Those are interesting questions that you have to consider, right? Absolutely. And I think that, boy, it's interesting. I don't want to steal the thunder from our set review, but I think it's safe to say that one of the very interesting cards in this set is a workshop card. Right. And so people who maybe are... (laughs) Want to play Ixalan. People who may be inclined to play an Ixalan card might tend toward that direction. It's not the only direction, of course. There are other cards that are playable here. But there's also the flip side. There's a tendency in the VSL to not play the spicy new card. I mean, David and I were the only people, I convinced David, were the only people who played Mentor right when it came out. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yep. So pe- so you could see like Sorcerer's Spyglass, for example, helping workshops, but people just not playing it in VSL trimester two, instead waiting to see how it does in Vintage Champs and then playing it in the third trimester. 
So it's really hard to figure out where those things are going to show up, right? Yeah, agreed, agreed. <laughs> well, I'm totally looking forward to it. I'm very excited, and uh, I agree with you. I'm excited about the impact of Ixalan, and I'm excited about the impact of Vintage Champs, and vice versa. I mean, it's, there's no denying that the VSL has some amount of impact on the larger metagame, or at least pe- how people perceive it. Yeah, I felt bad. I felt bad playing the Dak Delve brew deck, you know, because it's it's been kind of the mainstay in the format for over two years now. It's it's kind of a menace, but I I I want to just put one of my best decks up there up front, you know, and get it out of the way so I could play more entertaining decks in the subsequent trimesters. So, don't hate me too much for that. <laughs> but I did have a bit of, of guilt about it, but I, I, I promised to make it up. Well, Steve, we should move on, and it wouldn't be a set review without our previous review's report card. So let's see how we did with Hour of Devastation. We both look forward to this a lot. Immensely. <laughs> <laughs> and you you do me quite a service here, because not only do you do all the hard work of crunching the data, although I certainly do my share of the burden when it comes to the metagame data collection, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but but you also keep it a surprise. So even though we work with a, a document that we both use to organize our show, our show notes, you keep you conceal the results from me by hiding the text in kind of invisible ink. So <laughs> <laughs> That's right. For those so, of you listening at home, Steve is hearing this information for the first time, even though I have compiled it previously. So, Hour of Devastation, much like many other sets, has a handful of cards that we predict zero appearances of, but we enjoy to discuss, and they have zero appearances. This set's no different. So for the likes of Locust God, Leave to Chance, Firebrand Archer, Scavenger Grounds, Nimble Obstructionist, and Bloodwater Entity, we predicted zero, and there were zeros across the board. No major breakthroughs there. Now, moving on to the meat, Hollow One, Hmm. a very interesting point. Steve, you predicted four. I predicted three. Before, act- before, before you reveal, uh-huh. <laughs> be- before you give away the number, Kevin, I just want people to very briefly listen to this prediction. This is something that you and I both said in our set review. So just you can recontextualize this card as a zero mana 4-4 four, four that can only be played in Dredge. <laughs> Fair. And you have to have the bizarre, but you always have the bizarre almost with every keepable hand in Dredge, at least in game one. So if you recontextualize it in that, is a zero mana four four good enough in Dredge? It probably is. So the actual was two. Only two. What? However, however, there's an asterisk there, which I like to add in some of these situations. That doesn't include the very fresh top eight from EE7, External Extravaganza. Because the, the, lists, the lists are out. Why didn't we? Well, because we go by TC decks, and TC decks doesn't oh. put those results in yet. They will. It's still too fresh, though. So, so we can at least add that. We can count that as a third. We can count that as, well, it's a fourth, actually, because there were oh, there's two. There was two dredge two in that dredge. top eight. Yeah. So if you add in EE7, the result is four, which is pretty spot on to our prediction. And that includes the the vintage challenge that had the dredge. Yeah. Yes, it does. There hasn't been, I mean, there just hasn't been much success for dredge 
in the last few months, uh, which makes the results from EE7 even that much more surprising. But the restriction throws everything up in the air. So the actual answer is four, which is what I predicted. Exactly. So, but I predicted three. I mean, we're, we were spot on on how this would be used and how much it would be used. I took the I took the over. You took the over, and the um, the but the real takeaway here though is that this is now a mainstay in dredge, right? This is this is probably the default plan post sideboard, in addition to other removal and interaction. But this is where I think dredge starts post sideboard uh, for the moment. Rather rather than analyze its place in dredge. As a sideboard tactic, I'd like to just queue up this other quote from us from our set review podcast. All right, let's listen. Yeah, it could also provide a very useful sideboard strategy. Instead of trying to fight hate, all you have to do is just, you know, bizarre until you find one of these or all of these and then just race. Yep, you're, you're totally right. And that is another angle for this card is it sidesteps Cage, it sidesteps Rest in Peace, it sidesteps Leyline and Containment Priest. And basically everything. So Kevin, we nailed it. <laughs> Spot on. <laughs> and and Couldn't I think, get closer. Yep. And I think that I just want to reiterate, if you're preparing for dredge, you need to prepare for Hollow One post sideboard going forward. It, it really does actually change the calculus. From a Jess guy perspective, um, what I've noticed is that when, if they have Hollow One and Gurmag Angler, number one, you cannot sideboard all your plows, all your plows out. Right. You've got to keep the plows in. But it also means that they're probably not running, they may be, but they're probably not running the full pitch package right. of Mind Break Trap and Misstep and right. so on. Because there is, there's a tension between running Gurmag Angler and Hollow One and all the blue spells. So my recommend, what I normally would do as a Jeskai pilot is I would sideboard out Library of Alexandria, which is terrible against Dredge. Mm-hmm. I would sideboard out an additional basic you know, or two. And of course, Stony Silence and Fragmentize. And I would sideboard out Plows and bring in Containment Priest and Graft Digger's Cage and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you run it, rest in peace. But what in this case, what I actually recommend taking out instead is the Pyroblasts. Yep. If they are running Hollow One and Gurmag Angler, you're not going to have many targets to Pyroblast. They probably, the, in my experience, the pitch dredger versions are the versions that run Prized Amalgam. Yep. So I wouldn't, I don't think Pyro, Pyroblast is just. Anyway, just swap it. Yeah. Keep the plows in and, and, and take out the pyroblasts. Yep. And similarly, if you're playing bug, nature's claim suddenly has additional value, especially if they're on the serenity plan post sideboard. If you're playing bug and you're on some combination of leyline and cage and, and artifacts and enchantments and they're going to fight you with serenity, then you should take a close look at those nature's claims in your sideboard. What does bug do about Gurmag Angler? That seems real bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's you can't abrupt decay it. The, the, you can still dismember it. So if you've got dismember in post sideboard, then that's a good target for that. Dismember works obviously just as well against Hollow One, and you just have to prioritize how you're going to address that, how your answers line up. One thing that makes a big difference is leyline of the void. If you're on cage and other things that don't really prevent them from having a graveyard, angler is problematic. If you're on leyline yeah. of the void, though, they're <laughs> They're hard pressed That's to cast the, the angler. So That's a good point. The Leyline of the Void actually does address Gurmag Angler. There's yes, no way does. they can actually cast it. So good so, good answer. Good so, enough for me. I'm satisfied. <laughs> I would just encourage everyone going forward to be very cognizant of how your sideboard strategy lines up with what post dredge looks or post sideboard dredge looks like. Which is to say that's not a new concept, but the target has is a moving target. It has changed. I like Gurmag Angler a lot against workshops. 
Yeah, I do as well. Obviously, delve is a very effective mechanic against a workshop deck. Yes, definitely. And since the workshop decks are by majority not removing your graveyard, they're fighting you with cage. Right. And or relic of progenitus, that type of thing, Tormod script. Right. But let's move on. We've we'll got move a lot on. of next ground up, to cover. Next up is a Solemnity. Steve, you predicted three. I predicted one. The actual was three. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm doing pretty well with Ixalan. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You're two for two, uh, 100% target, which is pretty awesome. I, I would point out that I predicted one because I was uh, pretty confident that I would be at least one. And I was right. I am one of the ones. But then another one of the three is someone in Europe playing my exact list like a week later, which is hilarious and made me feel good. And then the third list is a little bit more streamlined a little bit uh, after our first two performances. So Solemnity, unfortunately, suffers from behaving very unpredictably on Magic Online. I think Oh yeah. not to Bug say that it, it would be taking over Vintage right now if it wasn't for that. But it's a little less attractive because it doesn't. It's it's confusing how it interacts with the various cards you want it to interact with. Still, pretty good call for us on Solemnity. Next up is a fun one: Mirage Mirror. You predicted one. Remind me what that is. That's the artifact that can become a copy of another permanent. Oh, okay. with the activated ability, right? <laughs> yeah. You predicted one. I predicted zero. The actual was two. two. Oh yeah! <laughs> yeah. Wow. I I mean, not only have I won all three of these, but I I'm like. So my so close to act my accuracy. Your accuracy is very high. Um, Mirage Mirror was used in some interesting scenarios. It was used in a Dark Depths uh, scenario by Charles Rolko at one of our local RIW events. That was like a, a, a Hex Mage Depths deck that also had Mirage Mirror for extra combo with Dark Depths. And the other use was in one of the Vintage Challenges by Tim. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but a user known as Tim which was also like a Hexmage Depths deck, but also with Helm of Obedience and Leyline baked in, which is pretty funny. Now, his was a really interesting list. So some fun uses for Mirage Mirror coming out in, in every case, interacting with Dark Depths. Next up is a Braid. Now, this is an interesting one. We had more Very. detail in our prediction than usual here. You predicted 8. I predicted 12. You have the caveat in your prediction that there would be more main deck appearances than sideboard appearances. Because we were <laughs> discussing... Like a a in... foolish caveat. But... <laughs> well, it's just that we were discussing in great detail the use of the card. The actual was nine. So what? your accuracy, again, oh very God. good. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> And Are you kidding me? I haven't been this. I don't think I've ever been this accurate in predicting. I'm literally <laughs> off by one on every single, either on target or off by one on every single prediction that we've made so far. That's right. But my, that's right. my caveat is unlikely to hold. So it turns out your caveat was not accurate. Of the nine, <laughs> uh, three of them had a braid in the main and the sideboard. So those don't count towards your prediction, basically. Five of them were in the side only, one of them was in the main only. So it was weighted toward being a sideboard card, yeah. but still f- uh, fully four of the nine had it in the main deck, too. So <laughs> It was a close to an even split. Well, and also this particular yeah. prediction, in fact, a handful of these predictions are influenced by the restrictions, right? If Mentor hadn't been restricted, then Jeskai Mentor might have had more abrades for the last couple of weeks, that kind of thing. So the spirit of my caveat is that I felt that this would be much more main deckable than the typical artifact removal. And so since there were four main and five side only, 
mm-hmm. I will take that as a both a precision victory and moral victory for the caveat. The caveat <laughs> wasn't accurate, but it, it did highlight an important point, which was this would appear in main decks. You are definitely validated in that regard, yes. <laughs> Crazy. Next up is Tragic Lesson. <laughs> you predicted three, I predicted two. The actual, sadly, was zero. No tragic. tragic lessons. Yep, we both have learned a tragic lesson here today that no one picked Which up tragic lessons. Which is what? Lesson. <laughs> what is the... I would yeah, say, it's just... Yeah, I would say it's... this was another one that was heavily influenced by the restriction. I think there Fair. would have been more more experimentation with this card if other things hadn't been majorly overhauled. Fair. Okay, next up, Ramunap Excavator, a very fun card. You predicted one, I predicted zero. I Wait a second. Wh- Bef- before you reveal that your yes. answer on this... I just want to draw attention to the delicious irony that you yeah. ran this in your VSL deck. <laughs> despite, <laughs> I was just about to say. Despite saying this was unplayable. Well, I, I did not say it was unplayable. Well, you're predi- you're pre- the, the proof is in the pudding, right, I, as they say? Uh, owing to your main deck versus sideboard shenanigans from a minute ago, I'd like to point out that the reason I thought this wasn't going to be played was because Mentor was unrestricted and Bug was unplayable. <laughs> that was the reason I thought this card wouldn't be oh, played. Oh, excuses, excuses. So when Mentor gets restriction, restricted and Bug becomes good again, then I believe Raminap Excavator is a good card. And so too did seven people. Seven Ooh. people. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, Raminap Excavator was one of the big winners from the restriction. The card instantly became played a lot. Do we, do you have a breakdown on pre-restriction, post-restriction play? No, I'm sorry, I don't. I really okay. don't. So our prediction was was premised on the unrestriction of Mentor. We couldn't have foreseen that when we did our yeah absolutely. hour of devastation review. But but I will still take the victory on predicting this would see play in a top eight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was way off in terms of the actual number. So. I just I just pulled up the the results for at least the main deck ramming up excavators and aside from a couple appearances in vintage dailies which don't meet our threshold for counting the first larger than 16 person tournament that it appeared in was on September 9th in fact after the restriction <laughs> all yeah all of the appearances in greater than 16 person tournaments were after the restriction so so restrictions play havoc with this particular prediction but but I would like to add that we also properly identified the home for this card right it's in bug fish or, bug, or of course that was so obvious yeah i or, thought this is <laughs> you know like big big mana bug control decks with jace sure all these decks fit sure. into that category i think it's a great card i mean anytime you take a very effective artifact or static effect yeah and put it on onto something with legs it's gonna see play yeah i completely mm-hmm. agree last but not least bontu's last reckoning you predicted two i predicted three the result was zero zero yeah. Which like, I think, uh, not full credit here, but I think part of that goes to the restriction as well. You and I, I think, were thinking about this as a good card for combo, like DPS as an There's answer to creature so decks. There's just so few of those decks. There's so yeah. few Dark Ritual decks in the format. Yeah, in retrospect, I wish I had said one, but... I, <laughs> Fair enough. But, I believe that Bantu's Last Reckoning will have its day, because it's still a very efficient <laughs> removal spell for a combo deck like that. Possibly. It people people are hard. It's hard to move people off to things that they're familiar with, like Toxic Daily. Sure. So just to summarize, the most played card in the set is a braid. Yep, exactly. Fol- followed by Ramunap Excavator, and then a Hollow One. Although Hollow One clearly is the the kind of uh, hogs the glory. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it certainly got the most visibility. Let's well, say. I agree, but also on top of that, I would posit that a braid, even though it's numerically the greatest 
has already seen its peak. A braid was there because of Jeskai Mentor being such a force and because of how good a braid is. Yeah, against shops and against Mentor. I have yeah. a suspicion that we're going to see less a braid and more excavator and hollow one going forward. Agreed. You know, when you think about magic sets, Kevin, I, I don't know about you, but do you associate magic sets with particular cards, like in your mind? Obviously, it's complicated by reprints and stuff, but do you feel like there is a there's like a symbolic representation of a, a magic set in your head? Uh, absolutely, yes. For certain so cards and certain play, sets, I sure do. Let's play. Let's play a little game, okay? Yeah. I want you to name the first card that comes to mind. And I'm going to name a set, okay? Okay, this, this might be tricky, but okay. It's a, it's, a, it's a word association game, and you can play along at home. Okay. Future Sight. The first card that comes to mind is um, uh, the, the, the green-white land, actually. Really? Yeah. Future Sight? Well, the, there's the first card I pictured from that. That set's very visually evocative because of the alternate card frames. You mean Horizon Canopy? Yes, exactly. Really? That's the first card I thought of. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily entirely representative of that site, but the set, but it's the first card I pictured. Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. I, the, I think the card I, I mean, obviously there's a ton of cards, <laughs> you know, come up, but I think the card that, that appears in my mind is Tarmogoy. Yeah, I would say that's clearly the flagship okay. of that okay. set. Okay, yep. I got a couple more. Okay, ready? Yep. Arabian Nights. Uh, Bizarre Baghdad. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I think Juzam Jin or Library of Oxam. Those okay. would be the top three for me. Okay. Yep. Okay. An- an- another. Okay. Yep. Lorwyn. Lo- uh, J- Jace Bellerin. <laughs> wow. Okay. See, so that's closer. It's that's <laughs> a kind of iconic marquee card, right? That that it is. But the part of it is the only thing see, I think about Lorwyn anymore is that was the original set that released introduced Planeswalkers. So <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I mean, I also think of Thorn of Amethyst and and Thoughtseize. Oh, that's but, fair. Those are great cards. But but see, this is the thing, right? The, Often utility cards are the most played card in, the, in a set. Sure. But they aren't the cards that kind of symbolically represent that set. So that's what I'm trying to get Absolutely. at. I'm trying to think when people think of a set, don't they think of like an iconic planeswalker or creature? Not some sort of random, you know, a braid. We are not going to remember Hour of Devastation 10 years from now for a braid. As the braid set. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's going to be Hollow One or Remu Map. Well, it's just like you wouldn't think of Alpha for Swords to Plowshares, right? <laughs> I mean that wouldn't well, be the poster child for. for I know, but the, but you're, that makes your point, even, though, right? Not even fourth edition is going to get known for swords. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, okay. you know, Ice Age. Does Brainstorm pop to the top of your list no, on Ice Age? I, no, it's Jester's Cap. Jester's yeah. Cap is the iconic card that it will always. That's a revealing. That's because Necro is a card that I think. First of all, the first couple months that Ice Age was legal, it was not really. I mean, Necro Winter, whatever Necro Summer. Yeah. You had to be a standard player to be really, really feel that way about Necro. Yeah. For Type One players like me, yeah, and I, I don't remember, know if you were. It was Cap. Cap was yep. the marquee card in the set. So, and that was an iconic card. It's got this iconic image. Yep. Right. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's the, the marketing was pretty powerful in that regard. <laughs> that specific two, example. Two, two more legends. Yeah. Oh, that's tough. Um, what's the first card? Just say the first card. The Abyss. Don't think. Ooh, interest. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. One more. One more. Yep. Ready? Yep. The Dark. Uh. That's funny. The first card I thought of was not in the dark, which is hilarious. <laughs> the second card I thought of was Blood Moon. Oh, that's good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The dark is hard to pinpoint a kind of like iconic card. You know, obviously Maze of Ith is the only yeah. card that was immediately restricted in the wake of the dark. But Leviathan but Blo- stands out. Leviathan, Blood Moon. I was going to say like iconically, you know, maybe some like cave dweller, murk dwellers or something like that, you know. Yeah. Is, but, but anyway, you know, I'm sure our listeners are going <laughs> nuts with their own reactions. But I, I just wanted to to think about how the sets are, how are sets encoded? 
you know, in our experience. Yeah. Obviously, it's complicated by the fact that cards get reprinted, right, or get superseded. But yeah. there is an association. Sets are more than just a vehicle for introducing new cards in the card. They also have, they're freighted. They're freighted with meaning. They're freighted with mechanics. Mm-hmm. They're freighted with, with I- iconic imagery. And that imagery matters. It's how we, it's the associations that we make, the kind of, and they become emotional, right? They're like, you know, the sepia tone photographs. They have a kind, they, they have an emotional connotation to them. It's not just what's there. My, so. and my thought process is a very visual one. When you talk about exactly. cards, my, my thought process is not mechanical at all. It's, it's when I, I'm picturing the cards, which is why something like the abyss always stood out to me. <laughs> yeah. It's because that card is very, it stands out among magic cards. Because of how black it is, basically, <laughs> how simple the art is, and how much it stands out. Similarly with Blood Moon, Blood Moon stands out because of how red it is. I always thought. Interesting. So there's just yeah, and, that's and just people, how I, I really encode the cards visually. And those cards also come at pe- different points in people's lives, like when yep. you're in college or in high school, or whatever. In my case, when you're in middle school and high school, mm-hmm. <laughs> you and know, what and, formats and, you're into, of course, and of what course. formats you're into. Yeah. Obviously, I mean, we just mentioned that. I mean, I I think there's no question that the skull is the most iconic card from Ice Age. But if you were actually playing Type 1, yep. at the time Ice Age came out, I mean, Jester's Cap, Cap was, was a huge by deal. far the most important and exciting card. I mean, people were really excited about Icy Manipulator, but the new art on Icy, and I knew talking about 1995, <laughs> right. was nothing like the iconic limited. I was very disappointed when the art for Icy <laughs> was originally spoiled. What, yeah, you didn't like the... The Rube Goldberg contraption, I see manipulator <laughs> over the iconic, uh, clawed clawed hand over the silver crystal orb. I, it's uh, not even close. It's one of those scenarios where if one had come before the other, I probably would prefer them in the other order, right? <laughs> True. But that's just the way I have felt at the time. Well, thank you for doing this work and um, and helping us review Hour of Devastation. Hour of Devastation has made its little notch in mm-hmm. the vintage format, and I expect to see see some persistence there. So. Let's move on to the Ixalan. Well, Steve, as we like to do for all of our set reviews, we like to do a little bit of discussion about mechanics for the set as a whole. And Ixalan is no stranger to sue to some new and some old mechanics. Uh, one of the flashiest things that Ixalan brings back is transformation. There are a handful of cards in the set that transform when certain conditions are met, as usual. These double-faced cards are fun in the Ixalan setting because I think 100% of them turn into lands, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. There's a combination of enchantments and artifacts that do so that uh, that echoes the exploration aspect of the Ixalan storyline and, and setting. I'm confirming, yes, 100% of them turn into lands, which is pretty cool. But um, most of them are not vintage playable because their trigger conditions are just too slow or their you know, upfront cost is too much. But we will still be reviewing a few of them. Other new things in Ixalan mechanically, there's a creature ability called Enrage that says whenever this creature receives damage, you do XYZ result to trigger. Won't be much of a relevance for Vintage because creature combat is at a minimum in this format, but uh, it has everything to do with uh, the balance of the cards as well. Many creature abilities that we reviewed from past sets are just for limited play, and Enrage is, I think, one of them for the most part. 
The other fun new ability for this set is called Explore. Explore is a it's a way to encapsulate a creature or some other permanent uh, exploring the top of your deck, I think. Because basically, the simplest way to explain Explore is to just read it. It's usually an activated ability. Here's an example. I thought, I thought when you get to put a, a basic land <laughs> into play. <laughs> well, you're not the first person to think that. <laughs> So the reminder text for Explore is reveal the top card of your library, put that card into your hand if it's a land, otherwise put a plus one plus one counter on this creature, then put the card back or put it into your graveyard. It's kind put of the a card really, really back or into yeah, your it's graveyard. It's a really complicated ability. Yeah, what's up with that? <laughs> you reveal it. If it's a land, you draw it. If not, you can put it back or you can mill it, which is kind of fun. So yeah. it would contribute toward it's delve like, or something. It's like a weird scry. <laughs> yeah you're right it's kind of like a scry you draw it if it's a land if not you get a, a variation on scry that's probably a good way to look at it anyway we'll be dis- dis- some discussing some cards with those abilities in this set review and thank you all for your responses on twitter to our twitter request because we got a good number of responses with many different cards in them and we'll be discussing most of them and if you don't tell us cards that you want to hear reviewed there's a good chance we won't do it, so we rely on you. <laughs> now, we, we do try and be proactive about you know identifying cards that we want to review. I certainly have told suggested some to Kevin, but, but we always hear people complain, well, why didn't you re- review X, Y, or Z? Why didn't you suggest it? It's not like we don't give people ample opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So take this lesson, and I think many of our audience have because we got several people responding, so, and some of them with a, a list of cards, which is, which is fun. So this isn't a mechanic, Kevin, but one of the interesting elements of this set is the dinosaur card type i believe this is the first time we've seen this right well you know i don't remember if there were dinosaurs that they changed to be lizards in the past i remember like wasn't there like a giant allosaur at one point or something like that some weird there were dinosaurs but i don't remember there being a creature type dinosaur before this set let alone completely right that there were uh, allosaurs before and i think for example Owing to our discussion about Ice Age, Pygmy Allosaurus, which is a three mana two two with Swamp Walk in green, is summon dinosaur on the card. So it's pretty clear that, that there from? Ice Age. Oh, Ice Age. It's Got yeah, it. it's pretty clear that there have been dinosaurs in the past, and I think it was part of the creature type uh, correction that was made a few years back, where they removed that type and made them. Yeah, all, I don't know it's lizards simplified. or beasts. Right? Yeah. But now they're going back to that, and they have released a list of a dozen or so cards that are being eroded back, back. to being dinosaurs, Good. <laughs> which is fun. Well, my nine-year-old, my nine-year-old self would have been very pleased, although I don't know why it took until 2017 for us to get a set with some, <laughs> some dinosaurs, right? Is that too much? Is that really too much to ask for? It's right, interesting. Right. It's also interesting. I mean, so this explore mechanic seems directly linked to a number of pirates, and I have to say that I very much enjoyed perusing those cards those vehicles that look like pirate ships you know i I read (sighs) moby dick last year and ever since then i've really enjoyed nautical stories nautical imagery (laughs) nice (laughs) there are some pretty epic boat arts in this yes yes (laughs) (laughs) i'm a little sad that many of them are not better cards which i'm not gonna belabor the point but the 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 fell flagship for example and the dusk legion dreadnought i mean these are some pretty epic boat arts yeah these are these they're beautiful i mean they they're just 
I don't know how else to put the how else to put it other than you did. It's it's pretty it's pretty uh, attractive attractive yep. art. And uh, it is odd though to have this pirate theme and explore and dinosaurs in the same. It's not exactly the two genres or sub sub fantasy genres you, you imagine being mixed together, right? I mean, one That's is true. One is kind of evocative of you know either Pacific or Caribbean uh, imagery, obviously with pirates, you know, circa whatever seventeenth eighteenth century. But dinosaur, we're talking, you know, the Pliocene. <laughs> you know, the we're, <laughs> you know we're talking the Jurassic. We're talking the Triassic. I mean, those are two weird kind of themes to merge together. I don't know. If you have a strong feeling about that, but I would prefer those well, be separated. I mean, strictly speaking, in an Earth context, you're completely right. I don't have a strong opinion on the matter. I think it's a fun combination, and magic is first yeah. and foremost a game. So uh, it doesn't bother but, me per se, but your observation is completely correct. I guess what I'm saying is they're both. Let me put let me put it in positive terms and not critique from critique terms. They're awesome themes. I love pirates. Yes. I love dinosaurs. Let's make sets that are just like more focused around one and then most more sets that are focused around the other. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you know, that's a fair point, And I think that is, <laughs> I think that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on to the vintage set review. <laughs> let's start with one Ashes of the Abhorrent. One W, Enchantment. Players can't cast spells from graveyards or activate abilities of cards in graveyards. Whenever a creature dies, you gain one life. Kevin, one of my favorite set reviews that we ever did was the set that had a Grapdigger's Cage. I believe it was Dark Ascension. And yeah. one of the reasons for that is because I thought we did such an effective job breaking down the component parts of Grapdigger's Cage. And one of the things I remember saying is that Grapdigger's Cage, even though it has a one-sentence rules text, it effectively does four things, right? Oh, sorry, it has no, well, two, 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 sen- two, two sentences. sentences. Each right, one does but, two things. Exactly, yeah. but each one does two things, right. Two sentences, yep. but but it effectively does four things. It, yep. the, breaking it down, creature cards can't enter the battlefield uh, cre- uh, from graveyard. Number two, creature cards can't enter the battlefield from libraries. Number three, players can't cast cards in graveyards. Number four, players can't cast cards from libraries, right? Mm-hmm. So the obvious point of comparison between Ashes of the Abhorrent and Grafdigger's Cave is Grafdigger's Cave. Sure. And uh, what's interesting is that Ashes of the Abhorrent effectively does one-fourth of what Grafdigger's Cage does, but it it closes off a small loop and then has this kind of like two percenter thing thrown in. <laughs> right. I think you know what I'm trying to say there. So I, I do. I'm, I'm simplifying a little bit. So basically, it only does one fourth of what Grafdigger's Cage does, except it closes the loophole that you can't activate abilities from graveyards. So the question that obviously pops into mind is, what activated abilities are we talking about from graveyards? In a vintage context, you mean? Yes, in a vintage context, because most of the activated abilities in a vintage context are like, oh, I don't know, Icarit, right? <laughs> What's well, that's not an activated. It's not. Ability. It's a triggered. Right. So, what activated abilities are there from graveyard? I is there any? I'm having a hard time thinking of a single one. There's um, flashback spells that can be played, but that's not an activated ability. No, there's not. Um, what about the Pharaoh? Does Vengeful Pharaoh have an activated ability, or is that a trigger? Let me let me double check. Vengeful Pharaoh is a trigger, so that's not activated. So yes, all the popular <laughs> uh, dredge creatures that come back from the graveyard are are triggers. Icarid, Narcomiga, Narcomiba, Bloodgast, Prized Amalgam. Those are all triggers. Now, clearly, yeah. So a dredge deck loses access to its therapy and its dread returns. 
but those but it can still get all the same value right. from creatures entering play like Bloodgast and Icarids and Archimibas, etc. Yeah, I mean, I can't even think of a single activated ability from a graveyard right now. There's got to be one, but maybe is there, is there something that says, like, you can remove this from your graveyard and cast, you remove it from the graveyard, and it's not a flashback spell, but gee, I don't know what it would be. So no, I can't think of an example that's in current vintage right now. Well, in any case, it seems like this is just a much weaker version of Graft Digger's Cave because it does not it does not prevent people from playing creatures from their graveyard. It just says they can't play spells. So it doesn't stop any of the triggered abilities and stop Bridge from the Low. Not that Graft Digger's Cage does, uh, right. but it does stop. It doesn't stop. Um, it doesn't stop Bloodgast and it doesn't stop Icarus. Right. And the reason Graft Digger's Cage can bottle up bridge from below so well is because in order to actually get a bridge to trigger you've got to get a creature into play like a narcomoeba or a icarid or a bloodgast and because it prevents those creatures from coming into play it effectively has the indirect effect of of preventing uh uh preventing bridge from triggering so so this is not going to be an effective anti-dredge tactic (laughs) because of the reasons we just said um it doesn't close and, any loopholes. It d- just doesn't do anything relevant that Grafdigger's Cage doesn't already do. Although I do think, as I or said, that I think Rest that, in Peace doesn't also do. <laughs> that Rest in Peace doesn't do at the same casting cost. I do think that I'm not. I don't want to completely write off the gain life whenever a creature dies. But as I said, I think that's like two percent of the value of this card. It's extremely, it's true. extremely marginal. Um, if you were to be, if you were to tell me, I could start the game with this in play against Dredge for, just for no value, or for, I'm sorry, for no cost. The only things that the net, stop- effect, the net effect of its triggered ability would probably be six to ten life in a game, which might yeah. might buy you an extra turn. But I, I agree with you that that's a pretty small percentage. It the effect the net effect of stopping therapies from being cast and dread returns being flashed back. Well, the, well that's the also irony. might give you a turn. That's the irony, right? Is that the two things it stops from being cast are dread return and therapy. <laughs> and yet, those are the two things that actually allow the creatures to die. So, except for Icarid, which kills itself, right? The dread you're not going to be gaining life if your opponent can't be can't flash back those two spells. That's so, very funny. Yeah. So it actually works across purposes. The only reason you would ever consider this over any of the other cards we mentioned, or specifically Grafdigger's Cage, is because it's an enchantment and hard to remove. But you know, Wispmare and Nature's Claim and Chain all still hit it. This is yeah. not this is not vintage playable. It is an anti Yogmos will tactic, but there are better versions of that. It's um it's better than rest in peace if you are trying to abuse your own graveyard. So that's I mean, that's still questionable. For, for that's Delve, still a question, right? Yeah, that's still questionable. I mean, you would, you're right. It's I'm not saying this would push it into playability, but it does have that one slight advantage over rest in peace. Yes, but then I, again, Cage, I agree with that. It has a slight I mean, advantage over rest in peace, but that doesn't mean it's better than rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, Cage has that same advantage as well. So, yep. this is not going to this is not going to supplant Cage and rest in peace or containment priest, which we haven't touched on, but also obviously in the same mana cost and more flexible. So. Yes. I think there's just too much competition in Vintage for this effect at this mana cost specifically. I, it's interesting. I wonder, what do you think this card was designed to fight? The activated abilities part must be the linchpin. That's the key. So I'm, are we talking about, you know what? I, I'm sorry. It just occurred to me. We're talking about standard here yes, and, car- say, and, and like I'm, mono black zombies. I'm too far removed from those formats to be able to even hazard a guess. It would be gross speculation on my part. I assume it's a, intended to address some sort of issue. I, I think standard. there's some interactions in uh, in standard over the last few 
years now that this is meant to stop. Like, um, uh, never mind. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. <laughs> so Let's I take on. it to mean that you're predicting zero. Already did. All right. Way ahead of you. I am also predicting zero. Let's move on to Tokatli Honor Guard. 1W. Creature Human Soldier. Creatures entering the battlefield don't cause abilities to trigger. 1-3. So, clearly, 2 mana, we didn't discuss this with the prior card, but 2 mana is, is, is in definitely a playable vintage mana cost sure. for a creature. 1-3 is not a great power and toughness, but it's still respectable and matches up well against certain things like, say, Phyrexian Revoker. But this ability, what? Creatures what? Not Triggering Abilities, was printed on Torpor Orb and Hushwing Griff, and neither of those cards have seen significant vintage play at all what cip abilities aren't uh are played in vintage right now that trigger with with a creature coming into play snapcaster mage okay that's fair that's a relevant click true and it got sure ah it got sure that's that's relevant sure precursor golem okay okay so this could be a white eldrazi card that's used against snapcaster deck um, it also shuts and- off thought not seer Okay, well, in that case, it will not be used by White Eldrazi. <laughs> <laughs> I thought not. <laughs> oh. <laughs> B. <laughs> yeah, so there there are... It's a low number, but high-impact uh, abilities that this shuts off. That's, that, that's, a, that's a good answer. I wasn't trying glib. I just wanted to know, you know, what kind of application did this have? And you answered the question. Um, the So, so... This could see certainly see play in a kind of white weenie deck. It could be played in a white Eldrazi deck, not because of Thought Knots here. And it could also be played in a kind of humans deck, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the question is, is the sum, sum of its uh, applications valuable enough to, to take up a precious slot? And I would imagine not, especially in the short term. I think the burden of proof was you know, on this card to see play, especially since it doesn't have much power. If this yeah. was a 2-1, then I, I think it would be a lot stronger, obviously. Right. Um, even in the era of Ballista, but you need to accumulate power somehow, and one damage does not really get it done. Um, I just I don't agree. Also, the all the cards we just listed, Snapcaster Click is is rarely played right now. Uh, Ingot Sure doesn't really apply. Thought Not Seer. These cards are spread across different decks and serve dramatically different functions. Right. Right. And it's, it's it's not like, like a workshop. It's not like a human deck is really looking to shut down Snapcaster. Mage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. In fact, if you are cards like Thalia and Thalia do it better than this card really would. <laughs> yes. Thalia and Thalia. Wait a second. Are there any merfolk that this disrupts? No, I don't believe so. The Lords, yeah. not Curse Catcher, not True Name Nemesis, because True Name isn't as you don't. Isn't you know, there one that isn't there one isn't that. adept, say when it comes to play draw a card? It does stop that, right? Yep, you're right. Ah. You're right. It does. I knew my so brain. There's... My brain had like a, a subconscious or uh, recognition that there was something, but I couldn't pinpoint it. <laughs> <laughs> You're completely right. Silver Giladept is is disabled in terms of card draw with this. <laughs> so it does basically a little bit against everything. <laughs> it's like a, a that's a fair yeah, assessment. Which means that it doesn't. It's not really good. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I can't think of it. Stops a mangle. Is there? This is a general question <laughs> that you might not be able to answer on the fly but is there any card in vintage that vintage that does a little bit against every major strategic archetype that actually sees play i don't um, i can't think of anything well i would i would posit that maybe a braid is that card 
but it does very little against combo. Right? Yeah. It's just blow up a mox kind of little. But that's increasingly relevant with Paradoxical Outcome. Right? Oh, I agree. You deny them a yeah. card. So it's not a great... I mean, you would probably board them out still. Yeah, but that's a, that's a very but, important kind of tactic. I mean, it's like strategically... Right. It becomes strategically important in order to kind of grind out a game. Anyway. Right. Well, and then there's the obvious answer of Force of Will, which does a little bit against everything. Fair enough. Right? I mean, that, that kind of but thing... But that's kind of goes Yeah, that kind saying. of thing could be applied to almost anything. Strip Mind does a little bit against everything. It also does a lot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so um, again, zeros across yep. the board. Interesting card, though. For Interesting well. card. Definitely. Next up is another interesting one, Hostage Taker. For two blue-black creature, human pirate, when Hostage Taker enters the battlefield, exile target artifact or creature until Hostage Taker leaves the battlefield. You may cast that card for as long as it remains exiled, and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any type to cast that spell. Two, three. I probably would not have suggested this card for review. Although I do think it is, mm-hmm. if I had done a written review, I'd probably include it. I think the issue with this card, well, I'll let you start. Go ahead. <laughs> well, the thing that stands out to me is the mana cost. So two blue-black is not an unreasonable mana cost in Vintage. We play Jace the Mind Sculptor all the time. Obviously, it sort of pigeonholes this card into a Grixis control kind of shell, because I don't think it really fits in something like Grixis Pyromancer. It's a little too high on the curve for that deck. And it doesn't really fit well into something like blue-black DPS or Paradoxical Outcome because it's not the right right card for those kind of decks. So it's a blue-black or Grixis control or Tezzeret control kind of card. And in that sense, I would say that it is nice as a flexible answer because it answers creatures and artifacts. So it has a little bit something to say against every archetype. And it does have built-in card advantage. However, owing to our discussion about a braid versus outcome, for example... This card is not going to get you much value the way you want it in many right, matchups. Exactly. It's a two-for-one. I mean, it's a guaranteed two-for-one. Okay, no. not guaranteed. That's yeah. the wrong phrase. It is a reliably a two-for-one, let's say. But frequently, that two-for-one is not where you want to be in the matchup in question. Or it's just too slow. Speaking of cards that are impacted by <laughs> Takati <laughs> Honor Guard. <laughs> oh, right. Um so four, four mana isn't exactly where you want to be. If you, if you are at four mana, you're looking at Planeswalker Terror, which means that you get recursive mm-hmm. or iterative, rather, uh, abilities. This, this, right. It's probably a two for one. I think one of the primary problems with it is that basically you're now in an environment where workshop decks can control their board. I mean, they can manipulate their board like a piano. You know, they can like, they can, they can move. <laughs> they, they, they can, they can move. You know, uh, tokens and permanents with Ravager and Walkin' Ballista and all that kind of stuff pretty much at will. And it's really True. difficult these days to kind of use this kind of effect to kind of pigeonhole them. I mean, the best thing you can take with Dak in this environment is usually like a Chief of the Foundry, right? Like a, th- a fa- well, I'm sorry, Foundry Inspector yeah. is what I meant, not Chief of the Foundry. Either, well, either one, one, but, but you days, can, you'd rather have the three power. Um, <laughs> right. You know, that's basically the best value you can get. I mean, it's you can't really Dak a, a Precursor Golem. doesn't really get you what you need to be. Uh, this doesn't really effectively do that either. Um, right. And you also need something... Although, I just want to be clear that if you were to manage to cast this and then cast that Precursor Golem on the next turn, three. that does put you where you yeah, want to be. <laughs> but, that, but it costs five <laughs> but mana. that's neither here yeah. nor there. I know, understood. Right. <laughs> um, and then also, it means that if you take the Precursor Golem and set you know, then you can no longer target it with, you know, a swords or whatever to kind of try to remove the rest. Right. That's fair. Um, 
Yeah, stealing a precursor golem does not really help you when you're relying on pinpoint removal to win that matchup. Yeah, and one of the best cards you could take is a monastery mentor, which is now restricted. So I just right. don't see a lot of good targets for this. That's actually my issue. Not I don't have an issue with this effect in the abstract. What I have is mm-hmm. a paucity of target. There are different, I would say, iterations of vintage where this could be much more powerful. This is not one of them. Let me posit one other counterpoint, though. Bring it. This card... There have been many cards like with this basic structure in the sense of this permanent comes into play and removes one of their sure. permanents. That's sure. That's and how and many of those actually? Point. It goes all the way back to yeah. No, like you're totally right. It goes all the way back to Mana War and Oblivion yes. Ring. Yeah. However, this one has one key advantage in, in a vintage context, and that is you can play this card onto a quote-unquote empty board in vintage yeah. and usually get some value because you can steal a Mox or a Soul Ring. And yes, that's not great reason to play it but it means that this has slightly more playability than the average card in this family yeah because in vintage like in other formats in standard or legacy and that and modern when you cast this card onto an empty board it's really going to have no targets in vintage it frequently will still have a target even if they're creatureless. yeah I, I mean it is interesting if you were to take like a snapcaster mage right you could get some nice value you could kind of iterate um, yeah that's a good point snapcaster is a good example yeah it's just I mean, but it's it, you just don't want to be investing in that kind of value, right, especially at four mana. But I mean, but look how good this is against Leovold, though. Well, they're going to get to draw a card off the Leovold, and then yeah, you can, but you just drew a Leovold, and then you can play it for three colorless <laughs> function, which is nice as right, well. Right, so you can cast Leovold in your Grixis control deck. I don't know. There's there, I, four mana is a lot. Yeah, I think I would rather Pyroblast yeah. that Leovold than if, than pay seven mana to try and trick and get mine. I just can't think of a blue-black deck that you would play this in, like Mark Lenegra's deck, Carl Winner's deck. Would you put this into a Psychotog deck? Would you put this into Mark Lenegra's championship deck from 2012? No. I just don't think this has a... You know, I'm fixated on Vintage at the moment, which obviously doesn't have a great space for blue-black control decks that aren't just paradoxicaling you. Um, But what are... You know what? That's interesting. This is an answer to Null Rod. It is a way to kind of detention sphere Null Rod, but... In Stony Silence, in Stony True. Silence as well. If you can ca- cast, but if you've it, got the if you've got the blue black two for this, then did you really need to get rid of that? Exactly. <laughs> I just I'm going zero on this, and I'm I'm trying to find a yeah. reason not to be zero on this. So let's look about let's talk about something that Reed and I talked about in VSL commentary, and that is the role of uh, something like Force of Will in the Bug Mirror. Reed and I both agree that out. Force of Will is not a very good card yeah. in the Bug Mirror, and if you can profitably board them out, would you put a, one or two copies of this in for a Bug Mirror if you had one in your sideboard? It, okay, there's so first of all, there's two different um, conditionalities built into that question. The first is that we're playing. <laughs> I'm pl- three actually. I'm playing Bug. My opponent's playing Bug, and I had this in my sideboard. But there's a fourth, a fourth sure. condition I'd have to add, which is that I decided there was room for this in my sideboard. All of those are are questionable, but the last one is the most questionable. Well, but the last one is the one that's meant to inform whether or not you would make all those other choices, right? It's meant to go the other direction from the normal methodology. Yeah, but what I'm saying, uh, I didn't follow your comment. My point was I posed the question, skipping all of those other uh, preambles no, you, purposefully. But you, you, you posed the question and presented those preambles, except for the fourth one, which I introduced. So you, 
Well, that, but that was the point. The point was to oh. skip them and not address okay. them okay. to see if answering the the last one informs the answers <laughs> to the, the another the prior. So if yes, the answer to your question is if this was in my sideboard and I was playing bug and I was in the mirror, yes, I would bring this in. No question. No question. Okay. See, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to pigeonhole you into some response here. I'm just trying to say. But it's also like saying. Seems like it's there also is like saying a possible yeah, home. It's also like saying if I was a billionaire and I lived in Morocco and <laughs> you know. You, anyway <laughs> no 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 it's not it's not that look what you just said is very illustrative yeah. there's a certain threshold for playability in vintage 99 and a half percent of magic cards you would have said no straight out there's no way i would board this garbage in <laughs> in a bug mirror i'd keep the force of will right so the fact that you said this card has some value is you know what's interesting go ahead finish the thought yeah I just think that's it. I think that this card has a place in a very narrow context and that it's decent in that context. Maybe better than a force of will in a one matchup where you're trying to get away from force of willing stuff. Okay. Yeah, I I also think it's quite narrow. Like if this what if this had said exile target artifact enchantment creature land or plane oh, let's take out land or planeswalk. Yeah. Then well, or that's a <laughs> That's a horse exactly, of a different color. As you as you say. Yeah. <laughs> now if, if it said land I, then I, we're in business if it says but even if it says enchantment or planeswalk then i think you're coming up on something much more yeah, viable then it's interesting more yeah because then it has different functions against oath exactly and then it has different functions against yeah the you could other exactly control decks and it's oath, an answer to jace yeah oath, you could take a forbidden orchard if it had land um if it had land well or you just take the oath well you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, taking oath is irrelevant i mean you never take oath. well no you never take an oath <laughs> you, it still exiles oh, it. Oh, I'm you sorry. You don't get control of it. It exiles, it exiles it. Right. Uh, yeah. No, I'm mistaken. You're absolutely yeah. right. It becomes anti-oath car- technology in in blue and black. So yes, yeah. Yeah, but to your more to your point though, it becomes very it becomes very flexible. It becomes better in almost every right. Matchup. So even if it didn't take land, if it just said planeswalker, artifact, enchantment, or creature, yeah. then it becomes a lot stronger. Right. I think I'm, I'm still not. Even then, though, I'm still not convinced it would see play. I don't think it would actually see play unless it could actually take a land as well. Because then it becomes a four mana, what, Fissure? Stone Rain? <laughs> What's the four mana uh, Creeping Mold? No. What's the four mana... Cre- creeping Mold is, is four for destroying yeah, there you land. Go. Yeah. A demolish? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess that becomes too strong then. Not in Vintage, but in other formats. You know what card this reminds me of a lot? And which we didn't, I think, didn't even review... But suddenly, not suddenly, but the post-release showed up in some top eights, and that is Palace Jailer. Do you remember Palace Jailer? I thought we were... Well, I'm not sure if... I don't think what we did. Do? But that's, that's beside the point. It's it's the f- two white-white. When Palace Jailer enters the battlefield, you become the monarch. When Palace Jailer enters the battlefield, exile target creature and opponent controls until an opponent becomes the monarch. It's a 2-2. Two, two. Didn't that see play in this... White Eldrazi at one point? Yes, yeah. it did. It did. In fact, it's put up a handful of top there, eights in the there's last There's another year. card in White Eldrazi sideboards that appeared in recent Vintage Challenge 5-0s, and it's it's a white, white one when it comes into play, exile, target, creature, and opponent controls. I don't remember what it's called, but uh-huh. um, I, def- I definitely saw it in SBA, Trion Arrows, um, Vintage Challenge result. Well, so going it, back though to Hostage Taker, this this is reminiscent yeah. of Palace Jailer to me. Like Palace Jailer's value is that it represents a recurse, not recursive, a re- repeating draw engine. Right, you become the monarch, and if you're the sort of deck that can prevent your opponent from getting through with attacks, then the monarchy is <laughs> a card advantage engine. 
Hostage Taker obviously doesn't have that kind of engine, but it's also more flexible. It reduces, it removes creatures and artifacts, and your opponent doesn't have a way to get it back if you cast it. That's that's one key difference here between this and all the other um, detention sphere kind of related effects is that you can make the effect permanent by simply casting that permanent. No pun intended. The creature I was thinking of is Fiend Hunter. Oh, okay, gotcha. Well, this is definitely in that family. I don't know. I I feel like I'm lobbying hard for this card, but I I, I honestly don't feel it. I just I just I'm seeing a lot of parallels here between a few other cards, Palace Jailer among them, and I won't be surprised if we don't. Maybe it's four or five months from now, but if we don't see someone have one of these in their sideboard for a specific situation, it's worth noting that if you get into a Time Vault mirror, you could assemble sure. Key Vault by taking their half of it. Sure. I mean, but there aren't many of those these days. <laughs> That's true. That's totally true. Well, I think we've belabored the point long this, enough. This suffers. Uh, I'm going to go suffers first. from the existence of Dak Fate, frankly. Uh, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. I'm going to go with zero, but my heart's not entirely in it. <laughs> I, wanted, I won't be too surprised that we don't see one of these. What do you say? I, I've already predicted zero. Uh, you know, yep. Okay, that's fair. Next up is a pretty spicy one. Sorceress Spyglass. For two, Artifact. As Sorceress Spyglass enters the battlefield, look at an opponent's hand. Then choose any card name. Activated abilities of sources with the chosen name can't be activated unless they're mana abilities. Oh boy. Yeah. So obviously we should draw the parallel between Phyrexian Revoker and uh, Let's do it. Phyrexian Revoker is the most played creature in the That's pretty remarkable. That's a remarkable observation. And the fifth the fifth most played card really overall. in the entire format <laughs> even over like fetch lands and <laughs> according to mtg goldfish which scrapes magic online results the t- the top five cards played in vintage are number one force of will number two graph digger's cage number three mental misstep number four preordain and number five phyrexian well, revoker well that pretty much guarantees this card is pl- vintage playable <laughs> i i that is my thought as well I'll, but let's okay. So, but we need to be very clear about the differences, right? Oh, we will. Yeah. Phyrexian Revoker is is by and large. I mean, okay. I I don't actually know what the stats are. Phyrexian Revoker is frequently a mana denial strategy. It comes down and names whatever it's mocks a, your opponent it's a, has. It's a mini null down. rod unless they have a, a, a unless yeah. they have a DAC or a Jason play. A yeah. Planeswalker. Yeah. Yeah. And then its second mode is to name a Planeswalker, either DAC or Jace or Jace Friends Prodigy. Yeah. Very few other things are named first with a Revoker. Some things are named second with a subsequent one, like Time Bolt or Sensei's Divining Top, that kind of thing. But it's usually a Mox or a Planeswalker first. Sorceress Spyglass can only do one of those two things. It can't shut off a Mox. Oh, you can name the Mox, by all means, go ahead and name it, but it's not going to stop the mana ability. However, Sorceress Spyglass does one other key thing that Revoker cannot, and that is it can name lands with non-mana abilities and shut them off. AKA Fetchlands, Bazaar of Baghdad, Maze of it. That's huge. And that's a subtle distinction, but it's yes, huge. Yes, it is. It, you said it yes, does it one of the thing. It actually does something else as well. <laughs> it reveals mm-hmm. your opponent's mm-hmm. hand. hand. Yeah, it lets, it lets you look at which their actually hand, right? makes so, Which actually makes a Revoker much better. Because if you lead with... Uh, yeah, the two in concert, yes. right? So I want to make a global observation about this card before we get too deep in the analysis. You dived into the comparison with a Revoker, and we've already started talking about their synergy yeah but i want to make a global option this card is going to be a night in this format <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be a night for a number for of a reasons number of i reasons. think is your, to your point but let me let me name yeah. two. number one people 
hate or hated Gataxian Pro. A lot of people didn't feel it needed to be restricted, but they still hated it. Mm -hmm. And they hated it because Mm -hmm. of the perfect information. Well, this card does the same thing. It gives you perfect information. Now, obviously not at zero mana like Gataxian Pro, but two mana in workshops might as well be. (laughs) (laughs) The number of times that you're going to see Ancient Tomb Sorceress Spyglass go is going to be very Very high. high. Number two, Mm -hmm. number two, this card has a very, very subtle wording. It's as it comes into play. And because Mm -hmm. as is significantly different than comes into play, when it comes into play, you mean yeah, when. when? Sorry, because as is yeah. significantly different than when. This card is going to cause, in paper vintage, a huge number of mistakes and misunderstandings. Yeah, this card yeah. is going to be a judge's nightmare. Not because judges won't be able to interpret this, because players are going to screw this up massive. So, for the benefit of our <laughs> listeners, the so many insane play listeners, let's carefully explain how this will work, Kevin. Yeah, so, well observed. When you cast Sorceress Spyglass, you don't do anything. (laughs) Much like Cabal Therapy. So, aside from targeting with Cabal Therapy, all right, you target the player. But Sorceress Spyglass doesn't do anything when it's on the stack. So, if you cast it and someone says, what are you naming? It is assumed at competitive REL that the spell has resolved and Sorceress Spyglass is now entering play. (laughs) It's also worth noting that this card doesn't have a triggered ability on it anyway. There's no triggers. it has two static it's abilities. It's like meddling mage. And they're both, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're both uh, effective uh, once the card has resolved and is entering the battlefield. It's worth noting that the as uh, phraseology is actually a replacement ability. It replaces entering the battlefield with interesting uh, do this thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so, has basically no relevance from, so, from a tournament standpoint. Yeah, but let's that's, stick with these. But it's worth knowing it's not a trigger. Let's yeah. stick with these mistakes that people are going to make. So number one, you've already said, if someone says, what are you naming? This card has resolved. <laughs> and yes. you are naming something. Number two, if you cast the spell and your opponent says, what are you naming? And you name a card, let's say like Sensei's Divining Top. Once you name yeah. that card, your opponent cannot therefore respond with Sensei's Divining mm-hmm. Top. And this is going to cause a tremendous amount of problem because people are going to say, in response, activate Sensei's Divining Top. Or in response activate walking ballista or in response activate uh ravager yes ravager yeah that's going to happen all the time all the time (laughs) in workshop mirror it's going to be an absolute nightmare so (laughs) it is right because people are going to call the judge the judge is going to have to interview both players say what did you say what happened and then people are just going to be lazy about saying you know they may they probably didn't even say you know whatever someone's one person's going to say um well it was still on the stack when I went to activate my ballista. And the other person going to say, well, no, he made a nonverbal thing that it resolved. You know, so it's going to be like, oh, right. God, this card, this card yeah. in one card kind of centralizes <laughs> all the things that people are going to find confusing and annoying about, about the magic, <laughs> paper magic. And, and it's also worth noting, too, that the order of operations with this card is look at an opponent's hand, comma, yes. then choose any yes. card name. <laughs> They're gonna, people so are going to reverse I, that too. <laughs> because, yeah, people are going to get those things wrong. Wanna... P- people are just going to hold their cards yeah, and say, what are you naming? And you're going to have to point out that you're supposed to be looking at their hand before you do that. Especially because, and some because people, people are just going to want to name yeah, a card and well, in play without even looking at their opponent's hand. So they're going to say, Ballista. <laughs> well, so 
I, I predict too, along the lines of what you're describing and, and fearing, is that some people are going to ask you what your, your opponent was going to ask you what you're naming. And then you're going to say, I need to look at your hand first. And then they're going to say, oh, well, then exactly. I'll respond. Then what? Then and that what? doesn't work either. <laughs> Too late. Too late. So, yeah, there are just there are just so many avenues for for mistake and misunderstanding here. And I encourage anyone who wants to cast this card to get very fluent with the, the common trip ups and be diligent about the way you uh, uh, organize. I would things. like to add to that, which is do not rely on playing magic online to help you navigate this. Because Magic Online will actually trip you up. Because it will give you all the prompts that you need, when in fact, what you need to do is make sure you're very firmly understanding exactly what procedures you need to follow in paper. If you are a Magic Online player, make sure you've got this card down pat in terms of paper. Both both is... From your side and from your opponent's side. So if if your opponent casts this, make sure you do not ask, (laughs) what are you naming, unless you... I've yeah. already let this resolve. Make sure you follow all the process because it's going to benefit your opponent. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I keep I keep thinking of new ways for this to go wrong. I don't know <laughs> what's going to happen if if you if you cast this and your opponent says, "What are you naming?" and you answer, you're like Jace Vrin's Prodigy, and then they're like, "Oh, I'm supposed to show you my hand." Both players agree the spell resolves, but then you look at their hand and they've got like deck in it, and you're like, "Can I change what I named?" I don't. I don't know, I don't know what the judge would say. Point. What would the judge say? I don't. I don't. I don't think you can change what you named if you've already chosen a card. <laughs> I think everybody's going. I think they're just going to throw out warnings like pink <laughs> slips, and and it's going to be crazy. There's. I, I predict a number of warnings for this at champs. What? It's just. It's going to be too new for people. Yeah. It's just. Awful. It is awful. It's also. It's. It's everything so, people hate. It's going to be rules confusion and perfect information and everything. <laughs> And perfect information and mana denial, not mana denial, but you know, oh, it is. Card no, denial. The fetch land thing is huge. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 the, the thing that's going to happen the huge. most yep. is because people are going to have in their mind pithy needle, uh, revoke, yeah. and then when this is named, yeah. w- once this resolves, I guarantee you, we're going to have a dozen people who are going to, you know, not be able to fetch when they thought they could. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yep. Oh, that's another good point. Yeah. Do not. Do not wait to fetch on this card. Just it's as soon as you stack. see a sorcerer's spyglass, just <laughs> <Yeah>. fetch. <laughs> and you need to be clear about that as well, right? It's, even if you have no cards in your hand and your opponent casts sorcerer's right. spyglass, make sure you say on the stack, not res- not yeah. not respond to it coming into play. Because if you just say, I'll respond to sorcerer's right. spyglass, that's ambiguous. You need to make sure that... that that's. Well, I mean, I, I don't think it is technically. Just but, be clear. You, but still clarity, be very clear. Clarity, in response to the spell. Clarity yeah. is what is required here with this card. If it helps, maybe you should name this card in your head. Sorceress, I'll fetch in response, Spyglass. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> just just <laughs> like it should your, be called. your fluster, fluster Storm trigger. <laughs> fluster Storm trigger storm, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I want to point out something else. I mean, we've, we've jumped to the Doomsday here, but one of the other very important things about this card, and I, I know... Most of you probably already get this, but the card that you name is unrelated and unconnected to the cards you see in your opponent's hand. Yes. They're in the same sentence yes. on the card, but <laughs> it does say choose what any a card nightmare. name, period. This card is going to confuse so right. many people. People are going to be like, what? So, <laughs> anyway. I, I mean, so when you're, cast, when you're the one casting this card, just remember that you get the peak and then you name a card like Pithing Needle. The two actions are not directly connected by the rules. You have to do them in sequence, but you're not bound by what's in right. their hand. Similarly, 
So don't don't you know don't sell yourself short by always naming something that's in their hand. Similarly, as an opponent, recall that your person who's casting this against you isn't required to name something in your hand. So don't try to get upset or be rules lawyery about hey I'm not holding that card right. You're not required to be holding that card. You can have an empty hand and I spyglass you and then name whatever I want. So I mean that's uh, it's to this card's Got credit it. it's more powerful no, it because is. of it that. Is. It would have been very reasonable for them to structure the card such that you had to name something that was in their hand, and it would have been much less powerful if they had, but still very good and playable. So, uh, Steve, I don't even know where to go from here. We've we've elucidated some key tricks to this card and some problems to be avoided. I think that's all well and good. None of that, though, speaks to our normal set review metrics of how much will this be played. We have alluded to this card on a couple of occasions already in prior shows as a replacement for a couple copies of thorn of amethyst recently restricted so i think that's just an obvious starting point i believe that a number of people will take uh, some pre-restriction lists swap out some thorns for some spyglass and go to town the fact that spyglass interacts so profitably with revoker Revoker, though suggests to me that this becomes a four of if not immediately very quickly agreed and i wouldn't be surprised if this is standard four of within no time i agree i i think this card is definitely vintage playable i think it's it's synergy with Hell, I mean, <laughs> Revoker, bring in, bring in Pithy Needle too. No, it's 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 insanely good. I mean, the fact that you can go, I mean, with a workshop and a mox, and you can go Sorcerer, Spyglass, Revoke. This could be an absolutely brutal opening. Imagine your opponent has, I don't know, oh, yeah. two Flooded Strand or two Scalding Tarn in their hand, and you're on the play, and you see their hand, you name the fetch lands, and then you play Revoker, naming a mox in their hand. I mean, this card is going to be bad news. <laughs> wow. You know, it's funny. I had considered the, the differences between play and draw, but I hadn't really worked out the kind of scenario in my head that you just laid out. This card makes Revoker so much more frustrating to play against because you can sometimes name the mocks exactly. they have before they even exactly. play it and tap it. That's ridiculous. So you could you could effectively three for two your opponent. <laughs> yeah. If you go like Workshop mocks, Spyglass, That's Revoker. You could take three mana sources That's out of their I'm opening saying. hand. They can. They could never cast a spell. That's what I'm saying. That's they could. Terrible. They might not even get to. to they might not even get to play a, a, a usable land. Tap for mana on turn one. Yeah. This is. This is. So how do we? How do we fight this as blue mages? Well, unfortunately, how do we fight this? you're going to have to diversify your mana base, your fetch land base, which is really screwed yep. up because now we need all these basics. This is bad news. I think that I don't want to. Over, I don't want to be a doomsayer because this card is not a thorn. You know, it doesn't. Whatever, yeah. but. It's really frustrating. I think it's really frustrating. I really do. I couldn't agree more. I I mean it's it's the little things, right? People might some people might hear this what we're saying and say, "Well, that's not a big deal. You just turn a, you know, a polluted or sorry, a, a scalding turn into a polluted delta. You're still fetching your lands." Except no. it doesn't work because then then you're going to lose a game post sideboard your... when you draw that delta and it doesn't fetch your basic exactly. to cast Ingot Chewer or, or or by force or something similar. So it, the little percentages are going to add up as, as you have to put in four, five, six different fetches in your deck if you need to. And, and it might sound like an overreaction to say, okay, four different fetches. That might, be the, that might be a necessity because the flip side is you open up a hand on the draw against shops that has two Scalding Tarns in it. You might not be able hmm. to keep that hand. Right. I mean, seriously, you might look at that hand and be like, well, this, if they have Spyglass, I'm never going to play a spell this What game. a nightmare. And that's the truth. <laughs> and so you, you just, I mean, so you're going to give up value either way. You're either going to lose some games to Spyglass or you're going to lose some games because Polluted Delta doesn't fetch uh, a forest or a mountain, right, for your sideboard card. So this, I think this card is a little bit nefarious in what it dis- in its disruptive qualities. You can't turn off mana abilities 
but functionally you're very disruptive to mana in vintage. Oh, and by the way, this card gives tons, I mean tons of main deck game to shops against dread. Oh my god. Yeah, right? the capacity to hit bizarre. This is huge. It, huge. Th- think about that though. I mean, oh, from a tournament structure it standpoint, be in vintage, it cannot be. Yeah. I mean, if you're going into the top 8 at champs and you're on dredge and you're in the you're in the lower half of the bracket, if you're in the 5 through 8 spot, with dredge, you won't be let able to win. Let me give a hot. Let me give a hot take because your because your shops yeah. opponents will be on the play against you, <laughs> and you might never get to activate I, I a bazaar in I a game. I feel bad one. for the Aaron Campbell of the world because this card is going to just murder murder dredge. It's going to murder dredge. I mean, yeah. Wildrazi is going to be able to abuse this as well. This is my, let me give you a really hot take. This is not necessarily an accurate take, <laughs> but it's a hot take. This okay. card might rest- get lead to the restriction shop because this is, this might be the final yeah. card. Because if this card, first of all, it exacerbates all of Workshop's worst element. It's play, draw, swinginess, bad. It's like yep. Trinosphere. This could be worse than Trinosphere. My God, if you, if you, imagine if your opponent seriously has two Scalding Tarn, two Flooded, Blue Delta, or two Flooded Strand in their hand, and you play this, yep. and they don't actually ever yep. even get to play a, act, ta- play a spell, this is worse than Trinosphere right. from a simple play yep. mechanic perspective. Yep. You know, I don't. I don't want to. Again, I. I sound like a complete lunatic doomsayer, but. But this is a. <laughs> the potential problems this card creates are enormous. Now, it also is very good in the workshop mirror. And, you can name. You can name Ravager if your opponent has the Ravager, yeah. and you have the Ballista. You can name Ballista if you have the Ravager. You can name your opponent's. Um. Uh. You know whatever mocks they have if you want to turn it off or a Mana Crypt or a Soul. No, no, sorry, you can't, you can't, you mocks, can't turn off right. the mocks. You can, but yeah. but it does give you the information. So if you're on the play. But you can you can revoke. I was gonna say, but you can do the right, revoker. You can trick, revoke their right? thing after yeah. playing it, and you can and you can right. also see like okay, they have a ballista. I'll name ballista, and then you can also revoke their mana. So it's something that you would keep in against the workshop mirror, which you would not do with thorn or sweet thorn generally, right? So yeah, so it's actually yep. good in the workshop, which is huge. That's a good point. It's it has game in the workshop mirror, and it breaks synergies even though it's a symmetrical. There's card. no way you're for your opponent to r- remove it either. So. Right. But it does yep. also it also stops um wasteland effects. Yep. So absolutely. and that's huge. That's actually tremendously huge. If you go if you go workshop, let's say you ha- you're in the workshop mirror and all you have is a Mishra's workshop, right? Is your only mana sword. And you play this and your opponent right. has like two wasteland? That's Yeah, you, you can just yeah. name wasteland it's and huge. be protected. It's yeah, better than they, crucible. That's a good point and they thought they had an amazing draw because yeah. I mean, and that's really interesting. This card is epically Epically. I mean, it affects everything, <laughs> right? It affects the distribution of blue mana. It affects dread. It affects the workshop mirror. It aff- I mean, it, it could, we could be seeing like crucibles rise or fall depending on this card. This is huge. This card stops. This one of workshop's biggest threat is bug. And you can just name Deathrite Shaman with this as well. So, right. Well, if you do so, that doesn't shut off Deathrite's mana True. ability. But still, yeah. we need a way. Oh, geez. I was just about to say we need a way to try how and figure out how many play? of these are going to be played. But I, I just realized this sees play outside That's of shops. That's why I said White too, Eldrazi right? for sure. Well, uh, I'm just wondering: is a cyborg card against Dredge in other decks? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is it, it that I mean, good? Does, oh, God. This, does it go instead of? It's not good on the draw against Dredge, really, right? Because history has proven that even one bizarre activation can be one too many. Is this Wasteland is a good card against Dredge, but you still need to support it with at least one additional you... effect. The good news is. This is like City in a Bottle right. against yes, Bazaar, right? Yeah. <laughs> they don't get to use any future ones, so it's it's better than a Wasteland. It's, it's better than in City in a regard. Bottle. City in a Bottle prevents them from playing any, 
but this this will actually prevent them from ever using it in the first place. I guess it's similar to sitting in a bottle. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think I think the net yeah, result is the same. same. They get one activation yeah. if you're on the draw, but if you're on the play, they get none. So I think the, the net same. result is Sorry. the same. No, if you're a it's if you're a dredge player versatile. playing against it's better this, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, clearly, clearly true. Just going back to the reminders about gameplay, if you're a dredge player and you face this, please activate your bizarre in response <laughs> to the spell, yes. not the because that the, the trigger ability that doesn't right. exist. Yeah, leave the spell on the stack and, and bizarre in response. Oh boy, this is really interesting. The um, harder question is going to be predicting. I, I, just, I just found myself wondering, I mean, does this go in the sideboard of, you know, a big blue deck, a, a Jace or a Tez deck, just because, I mean, think about the simple things. You could play it as a one-of like, in a PO sideboard too it's a or even yeah. main deck it's a po you can bounce it with po much like brian kelly does with chalice what, what does what does um what does po get out of turning something off what do they want to turn off wasteland maybe maybe i'm just trying That's to think of activated a bad, i mean dax faden dak dak or jace i suppose yeah. right i mean but if the game's going that long this might not be the card you want anyway still somewhat useful i guess maybe wasteland is a great is a is a good enough answer against shops right you keeping your academy in play I mean, I powerful. remember Andy Probasco used to play Pithy Needle in main deck control slaver decks, a lot, like gifts decks, a yeah. lot. It yeah. partly is an anti wasteland tactic. This is better. Good point. Okay, and can we talk about how this does? This costs two mana, which means it gets around yeah. this step. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, we need to come up with a way to predict our counts for Sorceress Spyglass. <laughs> and I mean, there are a number of workshop cards we could look at that would at least be an analog or give us a direction. Which card would you think would be the most directional? Yeah, it's it's really challenging to figure out. What we're looking for is a, a baseline or, or right, heuristic, right. right? We're trying to find something to anchor our prediction. The problem is that there's no doesn't seem to be perfect a perfect anchor. Uh, Thorn was just restricted, so people moved away from it. Revoker is the closest analog, but I don't think it's going to see as much play as Revoker because it doesn't hit mm-hmm. a mox. Yet it's also got a wide scope for applicability. Sphere only sees play in workshops, and this is going to see play outside of workshops. It's really hard to figure something to peg it to. Um, maybe Ballista, maybe Thorn. I-, I tell you what, instead of going those routes, I'm just going to say I'm going to go something slightly less than half as many Revokers. Uh-huh. So roughly speaking, how many Revokers have seen play since the last set? It averages about, looks like about 25 to 30 a month. So ne- nearly a Revoker <laughs> a day. So... You know, the next set review will be when? January? Late right. January? That's No, that's not right. It'll be October, it'll be November. December. Yeah. December. I'm sorry. They've yeah. changed the So it'll be three months from now. Um I will take I'm gonna go so half so that's ninety days. Half of that would be forty five. I'm gonna take the I'm gonna go about let's say thirty five. Okay. I'll take thirty five. That's reasonable. The I think because I think this is gonna have a slow burn. I think people aren't gonna quite jump onto it until like vintage champs and there's like you know, three decks in the top eight with this, <laughs> and then it's going to go up. That's so fair. I think I think it's going to the first the first half of the trim the trimester it's going to be a little the quarter it's going to be a little bit slow and it's going to pick up. So I'm going to go 35. You know, that's really low. That's really low though. The but, Revoker is the most played workshop card in Vintage, basically, but that's partially because Revoker has a, some splash in in other archetypes, right? But the first what you would call I guess lock component in terms of most played, is Sphere of Resistance. It's the most popular workshop card that you would count, I think, as a lot component. And yes. and Sphere of Resistance shows... It looks like Sphere of Resistance shows about 20 per month, based on recent months. So I feel like 
I feel like that's a decent indicator, but it's probably not going to see quite that much play. There are people who like Workshop as an aggro deck, and so they won't, I think, uh, be attracted to the Spyglass as much. So I'm going to go less than the Sphere numbers and less than the Revoker numbers, as you described, but I still think it's going to be more popular than you said. So I'm going to take the over by a fair bit and say 45. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I mean, I think it could be anywhere in that range, or it could be lower or higher. This card has an incredibly high ceiling. I don't think it has a very low floor, but I think the floor is probably somewhere like 20. I I think the floor is, yeah, I think the floor is a little bit higher than that even, but that's details. I do think the ceiling's pretty darn high, though. This could become an immediate staple. I mean, we've just lived through a recent era where Tangle Wire was cut from workshops, which is something that you and I would never have predicted. (laughs) Boy. Well, we must move on, though. Next up, chart a course. For one U, sorcery, draw two cards, then discard a card unless you attacked with a creature this turn. So close, Kevin, to the elusive blue one, draw two cards. Right? Want to be Knight's Whisper <laughs> that everyone's been calling for for years. I wonder if we'll ever actually get there. It could be, you know, power <laughs> creep and all. We'll see. <laughs> now, Steve, it's funny you should mention Knight's Whisper because obviously there's a parallel there. And in doing preparation for the show, I discovered something that you and I haven't really touched on on the show, which is in late June and early July of this year, there was something of a renaissance of Knight's Whisper in Vintage. With Knight's Whisper put up 11 top eights between late June and early August. Weird. Most of them in Esper Mentor style shells, but uh, some of them in a Paradoxical Outcome or Jace time kind of shells. Clearly, vintage players are interested and clamoring for this kind of pay-to-draw-to effect. Yeah. The question is, is being blue and having a drawback better than playing Knight's Whisper? Well, being blue... The reliability of Knight's Whisper, rather. Right. Being blue is is a huge benefit, of course. Um, But the creature restriction here, I think we're going to need to have some discussion, you and I, about how you tease out how restrictive that truly is, right? Because... One of the attractive parts of Night's Whisper is the ability to go land Mox Night's Whisper on turn one. And this card simply can't do that. You know, strange yeah. shenanigans notwithstanding. This is a turn two or three card at best. And that's if you've got a pretty aggressive deck, a Delver deck, maybe a Deathrite deck, perhaps. Or if you're in some kind of hybrid uh, artifact aggro deck. I, f- yeah, I, f- I find this limitation to be more restrictive than it might first appear in Vintage, because even the creature-heavy decks in Vintage tend to have only about a dozen creatures. <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. I think the restriction is quite limiting. The question is, is it still just better than Knight's Whisper, or, or even close? I mean, is it even the same ballpark? Because it doesn't have to be, you know, in the same... I mean, to be Vintage played, it just has to be, you know, a quarter as good as Knight's Whisper, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you mean. So the, what we're trying to determine is whether this will see play in Vintage, and if so, how much, right? right? That's what our analysis is ultimately a- attempting to determine. Mm-hmm. You've just said that there are 11 Knight's Whisper top eight since late June. Yeah. So if we were predicting Knight's Whisper, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we would say 11. Right. The question for Chart of Course is, is it even in the same ballpark? Do, the question is always, is there a non-zero number? Right, right. right? That's, That's a good point. I see what you're getting at. I can't help but believe the answer is definitely yes. I feel like this card is vintage playable. I think it certainly passes that threshold, and it only takes a, a small amount of creative deck building to to really make it reasonably reliable. There are plenty of creatures in vintage that have good synergy with this quote-unquote drawback, and it doesn't take much to, to build around that. I mean, 
obviously yeah, I mean, you can you can this attack card plays with well it. with the the, the the old grixis pyromancer kind of shell so it's good with delvers it's good with pyromancers yeah i mean you can even attack with the jace friends prodigy the problem <laughs> is that the problem is you need a development it's not a developmental spell in the same way it's mostly just yes. going to cycle so I mean, it's going to be like better than a. It's frankly with a mox and a land. It's better than I don't know. Better than probably better than preordain. Well, that's because I mean, with actually, a, I said, I said with the mox, with yeah. a mox and a land. I mean, it's it's certainly comparable. Let's. I mean, at the base value, it's certainly comparable, well, right? I would rather have a card on my, in my graveyard than in the bottom of my deck. <laughs> well, that's a good point. The graveyard synergy is totally relevant here. And it so it's it has synergy with Delve and it has synergy with the Dak Delve Draw Engine. It has synergy with Jace Friends Prodigy. So that's a key important difference with Night's Whisper that even for the lowest amount of value, so to speak, the draw two discard one, you're still contributing to other engines in your deck. Yeah. Also, also it's worth noting too that the the role of draw spells is different across different decks, right? Some decks use their draw spells in the Turbo Xerox fashion to basically to sculpt their hand, to make their hand playable, <laughs> so to speak, and to respond and react to the evolving game state. That's what Preordain does for most of the Preordain decks. And that's what the low mana count decks are frequently trying to do with their cantrips. But then there's other roles of card draw, which is to provide gas for later turns. That's the kind of place that Factor Fiction and Thirst for Knowledge sit, where they're not a turn one play unless you have egregious mana, but they're there to to refill once you've spent your other answers in the mid game. And it's not too hard to imagine this card fitting quite nicely in the latter and only taking the role of the former in emergency type situations. So are you are you predicting just I mean I just want to get a sense of the direction of your analysis. Are you predicting as you are predicting a non-zero number for this card? I feel like I am. Yeah. And I've already talked to a few vintage players who say, "Hey, this is like one of the more attractive cards in this set." I yeah, just this card this I feel card like is potentially pe- people are sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I feel like no, people please. are clamoring for this kind of effect. People have been wanting yes. the, <laughs> the, the 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 one you draw two cards effect for so long that people are very excited by it. What's the minimum number of creatures you need then to make this kind of reliable? Oh, see, there's the question. Um, I think that answer is fluid if you're willing to put up with this card serving some different roles. If yeah. you're willing to cast this card with no creature in play, then the number is very low. Yeah. I mean, if as long as it's feeding Delve. So if you've got Treasure Cruise and Dig, or if you've got Gurmag Angler or Tassiger in your deck, that kind of thing. But the mere presence of Snapcaster Mage means just cycling a spell like this has inherent value anyway, right? So there's that aspect. So I guess the short answer to your question is I would put this in a deck with as few as four to six creatures if I was a certain kind of player. But I would want a deck that has about a dozen creatures if I could. I would want a deck that has a one drop. I mean, I feel like I'm inspired to play this in a Delver deck, definitely a Pyromancer deck, and definitely a Snapcaster deck. And this card generally plays yeah, well mean, with other flash creatures in Vintage, like Spell Queller and Vendillion Click. So there's a little bit of a tension there. One of the tensions is that this is this is wants to be a Turbo Xerox card, right? Where you <laughs> yes, kind of, I see you your kind point. Of, but the problem is, it's the opposite of one. <laughs> yes, it's that, it's that's, something right. That's why I was making a, that comparison earlier to Thirst. This card is absurd in Delver, though, because if you just go turn one Delver, turn two this, that's some good value. Uh, definitely. That's kind of, I mean, that's going to be a, an amazing that's, play. Yeah. The problem is the Delver doesn't use all the Moxon. So 
Right. What are you gonna? How do you compensate for that? Are you gonna add more moxin, or are you just gonna play this on, and then it, expose yourself to counter match? It could be that this actually fits in a bigger mana, like a Jace control deck that has more creatures on average than the than the usual deck. Imagine this with Dark Confidant, for example, and Snapcasters sure. and Clicks. I mean, that of course the the deck I just described probably only has nine or ten creatures until you find one more. But that's still, I mean, nine or ten is a pretty pretty reliable number. And in a full Moxon deck where you can expect to play a Bob on turn one or expect to play a Click on turn two, that's decent value. Also, we're not really considering alternate sources of creatures, right? This card plays reasonably well with Mishra's Factory, for example. Not that you would ever want to put this in land still, of course. There isn't really currently a Mishra's Factory aggro deck in Vintage that isn't just shops. But Merfolk, for example, there you go. I was thinking of that because it sometimes has a mute wow, vault. Wow, it seems, yeah. It ta- seems tailor-made for Merfolk, but that's a fringe uh, deck. On the other hand, Merfolk gets a lot of its value from having its cards being uncounterable with Cavern. Yeah, that's true, but you're telling me you wouldn't put some of these in there? Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> fair enough. You still would, yeah. Well, y- your, your analysis is making me think more of this card than I would have thought before, honestly. So if you were playing a, a Delver deck, what would you cut for this? I was just about to ask you that. So... You don't want to cut creatures, and you don't want to cut your Xerox package. You don't want to cut your preordains. I suppose you could cut wastelands. I that makes sense. I think it's a one of those uh, take a little bit from everywhere kind of situations. One wasteland oh and, and one <laughs> lightning bolt, maybe you know one one of your counter spells, maybe. You don't need to max out on this card either. It doesn't have to be a four of to be potent. I could see, I could definitely see people playing two or three. You remember the days of four treasure cruise Delver, where so many of the lists had four of two things and then two or three of two other things right back in the heyday of four preordained four gush four cruise nobody had the full 12 really interesting how this card compares to gush is it not um well that's one way of putting it (laughs) (laughs) you're certainly trading one kind of resource for another in in that comparison right Well, well what's your number we can't we can't you know this is a very hard card to predict yeah i it's still it's still a pretty low number. I'm still thinking single digits to start with. Even though Jeskai and Delver have been popular of late, this doesn't immediately go in every build, and some people will eschew it. So I'm thinking less than 10, but more than a few. I'm, I'm going to say something like 5. Interesting. Mm. I'm going to take the under. I'm going to go 4. All right. Next up, Dowsing Dagger for 2. Artifact Equipment. When Dowsing Dagger enters the battlefield, target opponent creates two zero two green plant creature tokens with Defender. Equipped creature gets plus two plus one. Whenever equipped creature deals combat damage to a player, you may transform Dowsing Dagger. The equip is two. Dowsing Dagger transforms into Lost Veil, which is a land that has... Which is Lotus Veil. Right. <laughs> which is tap, add three mana of any one color to your mana pool. Now... There's a lot to unpack with this. This is one of those transform cards that starts as not a land and becomes a land. This card was recommended to us specifically in the context of Oath. So you play Dowsing Dagger, giving your opponent two plants, which are 0-2 defenders, otherwise lousy creatures, but they allow you to have the creature, give them the creature advantage for Oath. So it's an additional Oath trigger in addition to Forbidden Orchard. I don't believe anyone requesting us to discuss this card really seriously expects it to flip, but... Giving an extra two power to Gristlebrand, and that's then, not bad. Yeah. Well, I know, but then transforming it into a, a reusable Lotus for the inevitable cards you draw off Gristlebrand is some reasonable synergy. I mean, if you oath up Gristlebrand and this is just sitting there and you're about to attack, 
I I would equip Gristlebrand and go to town. <laughs> so yeah, I think if it all pays off in the end, the upside's actually pretty high. Yeah, it's also interesting that um, this card can break the Orchard War op- right open. In a mirror, right? you mean? Yeah. Yeah, true. Like, your opponent can have Orchard, and you can play this and then just oh. Right. Because they can't, they can't get past it. Pretty interesting. Also worth noting that once the Dowsing Dagger has come into play and given them the plants, the, the, the dagger itself kind of ceases to be necessary. So it's, I wouldn't say the removal is irrelevant entirely, but once it's in play, it's done its job, basically. Yeah. I'm still going to go zero. I'm still going to go zero on this card, but that is an interesting application that you've identified. The only way I could see this card being played is if there was an, an effect that it could allow you to transform it immediately into Lotus Veil. That's pretty funny. Yeah, that's true. The The fact that you're kind of tantalized by this Lotus on the other side of your card is going to make it seem <laughs> kind of sad sometimes. You could, I could see winning a game with Oath while have, having this in play and still being disappointed that it never transformed. <laughs> <laughs> so you're still predicting zero. I tend to agree with you. I think if you're going to invest two mana in, in giving them creatures you're probably better served to either draw some cards with some other effect or play a Demonic Tutor or something like that. I don't feel like this is better than the additional filtering and fixing that you would have to inevitably cut to put this into an Oath deck. So I'm going zero as well. Okay. Next, we have Sentinel Totem for one artifact. When Sentinel Totem enters the battlefield, scry one. Tap, exile Sentinel Totem, Exile all cards from all graveyards. So we have yet another Tormod script variant. Right. Um, Relic of Progenitus. How many of those are there now? There's Relic, Tormod script. Isn't there a third one that's uh, like that? Oh, Nihil Spellbomb. Spellbomb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't there a fourth, though? Yeah, there's Scrabbling Claws. There's Phyrexian Furnace. There's quite a long lineage. No, but I mean, so, so certainly, but I mean one that can just, in one activation, bust up an entire graveyard. Yeah, so Nile Spellbomb does that, and I think it's just those three then. Okay. So there's, this a, is, there's a two-mana one. There's a two-mana one that yeah. never sees any play, but anyway. Yeah, that we I think we reviewed that relatively recently, but this is better. This is one mana. Uh, it's essentially Tormod script, except for one mana you can get a scry. That's not bad. I mean, the problem, of course, is that it runs into uh, Misstep, but so does Relic of Progenitus. Right. So, so if and Relic of works, Progenitus is heavily played. Heavily and played. the problem with Relic is that you actually have to pay one to activate it so if you're a workshop player mm-hmm. would you rather have relic or this honestly well so you lose your own graveyard and that means you lose like crucible recursion you know um i don't know there are know, other things uh, so the, the value of relic and you're completely right about the costing one additional mana that's important the value of relic is twofold one is it has the incremental activation such that if you can get it. The dream scenario for a workshop sure. player is you waste their bazaar and they only hit, they don't hit a dredger, one dredger. or one yeah. dredger, and you can slow roll them with relic and just not have to pop it and just leave it on the board to continually chip away. That's the dream scenario. Sure. This card doesn't do that, obviously. And also, of course, relic replaces itself when you when you pop it. The activated ability of exiling itself and then all graveyards is the net is the same except you draw a card. So then the question becomes. Would you rather have a scry now or a draw a card later? Right, exactly. Oh, also and for a tempo deck that matters. It does, and also there's the the option of activating it right away. Right, there are certain yes. scenarios with relic where you don't have the mana to activate it right away, and you can exactly. be punished for that. This card doesn't have that problem. 
No, it doesn't. So this card really does kind of straddle the line between Relic and Tormod's Crypt, doesn't it? A little bit of both. It's it's a perfect example of that design principle I mentioned so many years ago, which is designing a card that is situationally better. It's situationally, situationally worse than existing playable. Definitely. Exactly. So this is a vintage playable. <laughs> uh, I think it's I think it's undoubtedly vintage playable. I think that owing to one of the things that we've observed a number of times and you've already alluded to in this show, people are going to be slow to adopt. I think plenty of people are going to look at this and say, well, that's not better than a relic. You know, you don't draw a card and that'll just, you know, di- and just dismiss it for that reason alone. I think the second level reading is where you see, oh, this will be better in some games and I don't have to crack it right away, that kind of thing. So I don't know. I, I agree with you that this is vintage playable. I think it'll be a slow burn for people to adopt it. You know what's interesting? I just realized this has one key advantage in the context of paradoxical outcome and that you can reuse the scry. Insane. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, that is a, that's a key, key importance, actually. <laughs> huh. Interesting. Well, that, that's, wow, that's fun, actually. It's kind of like the top interaction. It also can be found with Trinket Man. Sure, absolutely. All of them can that we've been discussing, but this one's right. relevant in that regard too. Yeah, I definitely think this is vintage playable, and I definitely think it's going to have us a low number before our next set review. In the intervening period, I don't think we're going to see a lot of these. The appearances of Relic of Progenitus are almost exclusively in the workshop decks. Almost exclusively. It looks like 99.5% of them are. I see one Eldrazi, somebody put it in Mentor, one Hate Bears, but it's, it's 99.5% workshops. And it looks like so far in September, Relic has put up one, two, three, four, five, six, seven top eights. Seven top eights so far in December. I'm sorry, September. What that tells me is this is this, this Sentinel Totem is probably like a, a a two to five kind of range. Fair enough. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to take the middle of that range. I'll take three. Wow. Um, I'll I'll go over. I'll take four. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about Deep Root Champion for one G creature Merfolk Shaman. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, put a plus one, plus one counter on Deep Root Champion. One, one. So here you go, Steve. Yet another <laughs> further different callback to Query and Dryad. Query and Dryad. And this is, this is I think, better than Query and Dryad, right? Is there any uh, question yes. about that? No, there's, there's, no dryad, there's no denying that. Query and Dryad says whenever you cast a white, blue, black, or red spell, put a plus one, plus one counter on Query and Dryad. Well... So the only doubt would be is if you're playing a bunch of creature spells. Because right. if you're playing, like, Delver will actually pump Dryad. Where's this one? Hey, That's right. But, uh, but as it's general. popularly constructed, this card will be better than Dryad because it triggers off of Moxin, similar to Mentor. Right. And similar to Mentor, this card profits very well from things like Sensei's Divining Top, recastable spells. Yeah, unfortunately, Queer and Dryad's day has passed, and I don't think it's coming back. I think uh, Young Pyromancer and Thing in the Ice and all those other uh, growing, ramping creatures are, are just better. I'm, yeah. I'm glad that it's, it's an option here. But, uh, so, you know, tuck this one away. Uh, if, if I ever do a f- future version of the Gush book, it'll be added. <laughs> but, nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I don't think, uh, I don't think this is, uh, I don't think this is a vintage playable right now. Did you add Mana Gorger Hydra to your Gush book? Oh, yeah, it's there. Okay. It's in the list. Yeah. Good. <laughs> it's it's on the shelf behind you. So if you go to uh, what is it? <laughs> it's the chapter on strategic objectives. It's on the table of uh, of ramping creatures. Okay. Good. Good. I wasn't sure if my version had that or if you added it after I got this one. <laughs> no, it's in that you have the you have edition three. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> so I 
think I'm on the same page as you. I think that at one point in the past, this card would have been good. Obviously, it would have been even better than Dryad. But I also think that that time of just vertical growth has passed. And we, <laughs> unfortunately for these vertical growth creatures, even though Mentor was restricted, we still haven't left the, the kind of removal that we faced in the Mentor world. So Swords to Plowshares is still omnipresent. And with Abrupt Decay and Dismember seeing so much play out of Shops and Bug, I think there's just no hope for this creature. Yeah, I am agree. I agree with you. All right, so we're going zeros across the board for Deep Root Champion. Also, I think Mana Gorger Hydra eats this card's lunch a little bit. <laughs> I like Mana Gorger Hydra more. Next is a fun one. Unclaimed Territory. As Unclaimed Territory enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. Add, oh sorry, tap. Add C to your mana pool, that is colorless. Or tap, add one mana of any color to your mana pool. Spend this mana only to cast creature spell of the chosen type. So we've got a little bit of a Cavern of Souls impersonator here. Yes, we do. <laughs> Taps for colorless or mana to cast the creatures of the type that you named. And we all know that Cavern of Souls has a very common and powerful application in White Eldrazi. No doubt. And in Human Deck, Human Storm, all that sort of thing. Definitely. And in Merfolk as well, yep. 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 You know, one of the things that I think is important... So one of the blind spots in set reviews is we are we naturally draw comparisons between cards A and B mm-hmm. but what we but that what compa- what a comparison by its very nature does is ignore the fusion so it's you know you're looking for differences to see when car- one card would see play over another but there's actually a, a, a sliver a thin sliver of relevance that happens when you put cards together mm-hmm. and we've actually seen this happen many times where you know, like Reanimator, for example, just isn't reliable enough with just Animate Dead, but you print Dance of the Dead, and suddenly you have enough to actually make a viable Reanimator deck. Now, you know, some people think you have viable Reanimator before Dance of the Dead, but the you, but you see what I'm, my point is. My point I is do. that my point is that when you create a, a a similar functional substitute, you actually new things are possible that weren't possible before, and so a narrow frame of comparing is this better or worse than another card actually misses that whole area of inquiry. Right. I think this is a good example of that, which is that this is the question isn't whether this is better or worse than cavern. You know, obviously this will be better sometimes than cavern and worse than sometimes than cavern. Actually, because, I'm sorry, it's always inferior to cavern. It's, it's always inferior yeah, to cavern. Inferior to, so, <laughs> so this is I was thinking that, that that it could tap for um multiple creature types, but right. Now, this is always inferior to cavern, but the question is is there value in having this as lands 5 through 8 in a cavern deck? Yeah. And I think the answer is yes. And the answer, the reason the answer is yes, is because number one, um, you won't have to take, you won't have to worry about janky lands that deal you damage, like City mm-hmm. of Brass and or the pain uh, lands. Man, Mana Confluence. If you're playing it uh, uh, right, number two, um, it can, it's that way to cast Eldrazi. Yeah, and it, that's actually huge. Those white Eldrazi decks frequently have basic planes in them. Right. And this card is most of the time going to be superior to a basic planes. Yeah, it's very tricky because this will, if you play this in Wild Eldrazi, it then completely precludes you from being able to play cards like Path to Exile or Swords to Plowshares. Right. But, but it taps for colorless. Yeah. So if you're playing Wild Eldrazi and you have a hand that has like Black Lotus and a Mox and a Planes, you can't cast Thought Not Seer or Reality Smash. Right, right. So this would allow you to do that. 
So how many times, Steve, when you were playing Eldrazi in the VSL, did you have a cavern in your opening <laughs> hand and had to hold it or or name something you didn't want to name because quite, you were cutting yourself quite, off for other options? Quite frequently. Yeah. Yeah, this card will, I mean, effectively have those scenarios if you commit to having this plus four copies of cavern in your deck because there will just be so many more times when you've got two of these name-a-creature-type lands. And you can just plunk the first one down on humans and plunk the second one down on Eldrazi and go to town. Yeah, so a quick bit of analysis on Cavern of Souls suggests that it's a little hit or miss. Cavern has put up, looks like, five top eights in September so far. The month's only two-thirds over. But it put up effectively zero in August, strangely enough. Only some dailies. No big finishes for Cavern of Souls at all in August. But then if you look at July, it was another five or six large finishes. So Cavern's been a little spotty lately, but it seems to me that you can count on Cavern for something in the range of zero to five per month. And right. the, the average month for the first part of this year was pre-restriction. So and we know that the Thorn Restriction has hurt the would-be Cavern decks, at least some of them, the, the most popular Not- ones. Yeah, it's hard to say. It's yeah. hard to say, but yes. And this has overlapping impacts with cards like Sorcerer's Spyglass, which White Eldrazi might might turn to as well. So I have to believe that this card will see play, and but it'll be in a small number. If, if, if we see Unclaimed Territory, my guess is I don't think Eldrazi, White Eldrazi is poised to do very well, but, but who knows? Like with Champs coming up, White Eldrazi could be the sort of deck that sneaks into the top eight at Champs. Right. And or it could be the sort of thing that punishes people in an uncertain metagame in a challenge coming up. So there's, would, al- there's I, always space for it. I would definitely be tempted to play this in White Eldrazi. I would I definitely, it, yes. Yeah. I'd I have would to absolutely. test it. But I mean, there is obviously, it is nice to have basic planes. It's an answer to Ghost Quarter, etc. Sure. So maybe you still want a basic planes, but maybe a couple of these. I don't know. Right. Yeah, we were immediately talking about putting four ofs, basically, in this, and that's certainly not a given. I could certainly see various lists that had between one and three copies of this, and it would be right at home. Right. Also, this is just a gift to humans, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Those five-color oh, yeah. human decks. Yeah. It's just better than the, the other ones we talked about already. Right. Okay, well, so I'm going to go with a relatively low number. I'm just going to go with, let's say, I'm going to go with two. Oh, God. Because I think the um, card is I'll good take... in the decks that it's good in, but White Eldrazi is a little bit down right now. Yeah, I'll take I'll take the uh, above. I'll take, the f- I'll take three. Okay, sounds good. All right, next we have Coppola, Warden of Waves, for one UU. Legendary creature, Merfolk Wizard. Spells your opponent's cast at target a Merfolk you control. Cost two more to cast. Abilities your opponents activate that target a Merfolk you control. Cast two more to activate. 2-2. Two, two. So I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this card. It's not a lord, which means it's not likely to see play, because I think almost all the Merfolk that see play in the Merfolk deck are lords. The exceptions are, of course, like Curse Catcher or Silver Gal Adept or True Name Nemesis. Right. So the question is, is its disruption good enough? Um, it's interesting. It is... The, the fact that it makes Plow or Lightning Bolt cost two more mm-hmm. does seem relevant. Uh, what about the activated ability? Not too many of those, but uh, Walking Ballista comes to mind. That's true. That's true. Right. Yeah, the, the one analogy I can think of here is Kira, Great Glass Spinner, but she sees basically no play. Uh, but it's a it would be an effective sideboard card, I think, maybe as a one-of against in removal-heavy matchups. Maybe against Bug or something, 
because this is also an answer to abrupt decay, right? Okay, ans- answer is not the right word, but it's a tactic right. that delays abrupt decay. And when you're a wasteland deck like Merfolk is, then you could possibly keep an abrupt decay at bay for for quite a long time. Indefinitely, yeah, yeah, which is is enough time with when tempo you're, when you're filled oh, you with lords, yeah, right, yeah. So I think in it could be a sideboard tactic or a one of in a Merfolk deck. Agreed. Like if you're facing like a deck with a lot of plows and bolts, you yeah. might consider this. I would. Also, um, Jace the Mind Sculptor to have to pay two mana to Jace bounce a creature. Yeah. So there's a lot of there's a, there's a fair amount of interactions here. Yeah, Merfolk is is obviously a small part of the metagame of late. So I, it's even if this card is a good in Merfolk, it it could be we could go a month or two without seeing a Merfolk top eight. <laughs> so I think this You're card right. is playable, but I'm still going to predict zero. But that's not an indictment of its playability. Fair enough. What do you uh, say? I'm, I'm, um, hmm. Yeah, you, you just haven't seen a Merfolk, have we? So yeah. I'm going to have to say no as well. Okay, Zero. fair enough. Next, let's talk about Ixalan's Binding for 3W Enchantment. When Ixalan's Binding enters the battlefield, exile target non-land permanent and opponent controls until Ixalan's Binding leaves the battlefield. Your opponents can't cast spells with the same name as the exiled card. Well, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time reviewing this card, Kevin, but it does fit into a very small class of cards that prevents your opponent from casting a card. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, like um, Meddling Mage and this card and sometimes sitting in a bottle. Right. There are a couple others. But the conditionality is just awful on this. The fact that A, it has to be in their hand. No. Right? I'm sorry, not in their hand. It has to be in play, rather. <laughs> And right. they have to draw a subsequent version of the card. So it obviously has no real effect in terms of preventing your opponent from playing a restricted card. Right. Um, and four mana is a lot. But, you know, I this this isn't going to see play. Yeah. But it is, it's a four mana, essentially, Desert Twister that, can, that has the additional benefit of preventing people from playing a card from hand. Yeah, that's true. And I think that uh, even though it can hit planeswalkers and it's quite flexible, the basic functionality of cards like uh, Oblivion Ring and Detention Sphere don't really see play in Vintage. So, for one no. more mana to make them not be able to play it again, I I really think we're we're over the threshold for playability here. Yeah, agreed. What's next? Next is Costly Plunder for one black instant as an additional cost to cast Costly Plunder. Sacrifice an artifact or creature. Draw two cards. I think what's interesting here is that. This card, it's similar to the Knight's Whisper Charter Course um, discussion we had about uh, cards uh, moving along a scale uh, toward an end goal where people just want to be able to pay two mana and draw two cards, right? So this card is, I think, on a spectrum of cards throughout history that involve you sack a thing and then you draw two cards. And they're getting, I think, more aggressive in their costs, are they? Because this one is as additional cost to cast it, sacrifice an artifact or creature, draw two cards. Compare that to the the old card Dredge, sacrifice a creature or land, draw a card. So this costs one more mana and draws you two cards. Compare that to Alter's Reap as an addition. This is an instant. Well, as an additional <laughs> cost to cast Alter's Reap, sacrifice a creature, draw two cards. So this is more flexible than that. So this what this reminds me of is there was a class of cards that I encountered. When I was building Mean Deck Tendrils years ago, mm-hmm. like over a decade ago, like Diabolic Intent, and then there was um, one that gives you four mana if you sacrifice a creature. So if you play like an Ornithopter, you know, you could sacrifice it. You could you could play that. What was that card that gives you four mana? Oh, yeah. What was that? Uh, Culling the Weak? Yes, I think that's it. Right. And then there's Diabolic Intent, which is it like 
demonic tutor if you sacrifice a creature. That's right. That's right. At this, at this mana cost. So this is kind of in that class, right? It's just, in this case, you have to sacrifice an artifact for a creature, so it's a little bit more flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get two cards. So I guess the question is, if you have, like, I don't know, like, Mox Land in this, would you, is it worth it? Right. You know? It's to, probably still worth it. To effectively cycle your Mox. Yeah, it's probably worth, I mean, there's certainly value to having a Mox in your graveyard, but it's probably still just worse. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I don't think we've passed the threshold yet. Um, I wonder what it would take to get to that threshold. If this cost one mana, would it be worth it? And one mana, <laughs> it's definitely more efficient, but you're also I- introducing the mental misstep problem. Yeah, it's really hard to say. I don't think it's about mana. I think it's about reliability. Yeah, I think that's th- fair. Th- I, think, I think the mana, even if it costs mana, you still have the same problem. If you could sacrifice a land, are you in business? Yes. Because then you can respond to a wasteland. Yes. Yeah, if it's if it says sacrifice an artifact, creature, or land, then I think you're I think you're in a pretty rich vein of playability. Yeah, I think that's a good point. What, what with how omnipresent wasteland is in the format. Okay, well I'm predicting but, zero here. But otherwise, here. it's it's just about the reliability of this versus Knight's Whisper, right? Yeah. You you almost always have two life to give, like ninety nine percent of the time. Right. Whereas you might not always want to give an artifact or a creature. Or have one to give. That's right. You're exactly right. If you're playing a storm deck though, and you're trying to just win in one turn, then this might actually be pretty good. It might just be better than Night's Whisper, like in a mean deck tendrils type deck. But anyway. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it certainly has increased relevance with um, unrestricted bargain. It's too you bad can you also, can't sack bargain to this. <laughs> yeah. You can also get rid of a superfluous opal this way. That's a good point. That's fair. But anyway. Anyway. All right. Primal amulet. Four artifact instant and sorcery spells you cast cost one less to cast. Whenever Close you to Helm ca- of Awakening, right? Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, put a charge counter on Primal Amulet. Then, if there are four or more charge counters on it, you may remove those counters and transform it. It transforms into Primal Wellspring land. Tap at one mana of any color to your mana pool. When that mana is spent to cast an instant or sorcery spell, copy that spell, and you may choose new targets for the copy. Akin, kind of akin to Baral, akin to, yeah. as you said, Helm, akin to Sapphire Medallion. It's kind of got a little bit of a fork in there. Yep. And then it, it makes forks once it's transformed. Ironically, the forking ability is not actually that useful in Vintage. No. It, I mean, because forking... Okay, there's certain times well, when it's obviously strong. Yeah, like for, Forking your counter spells means that they're insane. harder to counter. Yeah. But frequently, those counter spells are still just one for ones anyway. Obviously, you're going to get value when you fork a pyroblast, for example. But as you just observed, against workshops, if you're forking nature's claims and swords, then you're in business. But that's after you spent four mana and played how many? Right. Four other spells? Right. So if you've gotten yeah, to mean, that point against workshops, you probably don't need this effect. Reducing your spells is great. The problem is that the cost of your spells is great. The problem is that your instants and sorceries already cost one unless you're playing <laughs> unless you're playing by fours right but more importantly as you said four mana is just not four mana to begin reducing let alone get a fork is just too much if there was still a workshop slaver deck in vintage we might be talking right yeah a deck that had workshops <laughs> and force of wills <laughs> and, and you could get like thirst and draw sevens cost less sure exactly right yeah the old the old stacks decks with meditate <laughs> plus you've got to get this thing you've got to play four instants or sorceries to get this thing to flip it's like thing in the ice right right 
No, I think the, the investment is just too much for the payoff here. The land is nice and everything, but... It is. It is. But it's just too much cost up front. Agreed. I'm going zero. Me too. Interesting card, though. Yep. Let's talk about Sword Point Diplomacy. For 2B Sorcery, reveal the top three cards of your library. For each of those cards, put that card into your hand unless any opponent pays three life, then exile the rest. Punisher mechanic has returned. Yep. This This is just worse than Painful Truths. I was just going to say, this is obviously Painful Truths, and given the applications for Painful Truths, it does much better, right? Because it's in three-color decks, most commonly. So you're straight up just drawing three cards for three life. Granted, this card doesn't cost you any life, and it's easier to play in a deck that has fewer colors, but the color requirements are usually not a major issue in Vintage, what with off-color Moxin, etc. Agreed. Unfortunately, your opponent gets to make the choice here. Yeah, that never works out well in Vintage. <laughs> right. <laughs> Unless you're playing like Gifts Ungiven, where it's a compelled choice. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that the other cards are exiled is really the nail in the coffin oh, here. If they went to your yeah, graveyard, that'd be something. But no, the fact that they're exiled it means you've lost all possible other synergies. Yeah, I think Painful Truths is always going to beat this card out, and that's even rare to this this point in Vintage. Yeah, we're both zeros. Definitely. Uh, there, were, there are a number of small cards we didn't review that I think we're both zeros on. The new inverse Rogue Elephant, that's a zero. Right. The card that you can sacrifice to protect like a kind of Kira effect is, is zero. Right, the Storm, um, storm tra- Tamer. Yeah, no, no need to provide detailed analysis on those, but but overall, I'm impressed with this set. I mean, I, I know you're probably less impressed than I am, but <laughs> the fact the fact that there's a card in here that has broken our record for prediction is is telling. Let me yeah, let me summarize here. So, how many cards did we predict play for? We predicted Sorceress Spyglass is one, Charter Course is two, Sentinel Totem is three, Unclaimed Territory is four. We predicted play for four cards. That's decent. It's a little below average of late, but as you just said, Steve. We've predicted a record amount of Sorcerer's Spyglass, and I think even if we're off by a little bit, it's still going to be, be enormous. Enormous, yes. <laughs> yeah. And we predicted healthy play for Charter Course and Sentinel Totem. These are strong cards. Not just that, but these are long-term cards, right? Right. Charter Course and Sentinel Totem and Unclaimed Territory. These are these are the kind of cards that can become staples in archetypes over the long term. And obviously, Agreed. Sorcerer's Spyglass. So I don't think I don't think these are questionable flash in the pan things. I think these are good, reliable vintage cards. I am excited to see them play, but I'm also nervous about seeing them play. <laughs> to be honest, well, I, I'm a little bit worried about the potential drawbacks to Sp- Sorcerer's Spyglass that we laid out. But all things considered, it's a great card, and it will it has a home, and it'll be here to stay. I think. Yep. I'm excited for what we discussed at the top of the show about the future of VSL as these cards become legal and especially leading into champs. That leads me to our question for this episode, which is obviously, what do you think is the most best playable card from Ixalan for Vintage? I think we know the answer, but not everyone feels the same way as us. And we have obviously our Vintage Champs prep show coming up shortly after this. So in a couple of weeks, we'll be releasing a show talking about the state of the metagame post-Ixalan, what you can expect at Champs, our predictions for the metagame breakdown, and general tips for what you can expect to face and ideas for what you should bring. Looking forward to it. Kevin, this has been a good one. So, And good luck to you in the next uh, semester of the trimester of the VSL. Yes, to you as well. I predicted that we will be on camera together playing and commentating sometime soon. Well, that would be awesome. 
It always is. And with that, thank you for listening to episode 71 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.